The Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position, and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife, Catherine, was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. It happened again. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. I was at the hospital, Mr. Thorne, the night your son was born. I saw its mother. I saw its mother. I have fears. I have fears. Got fears. Its mother, Mr. Thorne. You saw my wife. Its mother. What is it you're trying to say? His mother was a This is not a human child. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? All during the picture, there was strange things happening. It was an aura of, of not being welcomed. I mean, the devil was really, I really sincerely believe that the devil didn't want the picture to be made. If we had been making a comedy, you would have recalled all the funny, great, ridiculous, silly moments that happened in that film. If you were doing a, 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 a love story, you'd remember all the times every somebody left their wife, no one fell in love with the granddad, blah, 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 blah. You do in The Omen, anything that happens on that film, you don't tell about the jokes, you don't tell about the love stories, you don't even think about it, but you think about anything that coincidentally could have been something to do with The Omen. So we had lots of them. There were all kinds of incidents during the shooting of this film. film. He says, if you guys go ahead and make this movie before you are done, you will believe the devil exists. And he was absolutely right. Who is he? What does he want? Where did he come from? And can he be stopped? If this is the truth, where does it end? Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old... There was this girl... It was back when we were a little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Thanks everybody for coming back for another weird, wonderful tale. Right, straight from our favorite urban legend source. The Catholic Church? Yeah, that's the one. And movies? And movies! It's what we do. But before we get into that, let's take a minute and thank our trusty listeners who have been on Team Just a Story um, in one way or another. We've had some new ratings and reviews. Sure, we have Cleo Catra 2 that left a wonderfully nice review on iTunes. Mm-hmm. And other people leaving ratings as well. And if you have not done so yet, we'd really appreciate it. It helps us just get more listeners. Right. It's the giant ask of every podcast. Please, 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 please go rate and review. It earns you a special place and have every time. Wait. No. No. I think it's time we tell them. Every time you rate and review an urban legend is born. I was going to say an angel gets its wings, but I like your idea. 
Urban legends are like cute little uh, unicorn pegasi that live up in the clouds. Yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. But the kind that kill people. Yeah, they have giant teeth. It's a horn. No, they also have It's teeth. not like a narwhal. It's not a tooth. It's a horn. How do you know that? I don't know. <laughs> it might be a tooth. And we also want to thank everyone that's reaching out to us on our social media, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc., where you can find tons of information about these shows and great ways to contact us. We also have our website, justastorypod.com, which is another place you can find lots more information on the topics we discuss, including all of our sources, videos, pics. My stuff I draw all the time. Pretty stuff. I like my stuff. I'm very fond of it. It's, I'm getting quite a catalog up there. And I do a new illustration for each episode. I also link 97% of the sources we use. Like we have like 35 sources for the most recent episode I posted. So if you're interested in learning more, it's a great place to go. Also, if you want to make sure we're not making all of this up, you can go and verify that there. Really? We are making it up. Some of it. We are. But we, we were not the first people to do it. And on our website, you'll also find links to our merch store where you can find t-shirts, etc. designed by... Me, again. Samantha. And also on there, you'll find a link to our Patreon page. Right. And on Patreon, you can subscribe at various levels each month. And if you so choose to do that, you can elect to... You know, join at a level where you get to come to digital meetups or... Or get access to our minicast. Right, just the stories. And those are weird little stories from history from the original sources. So no urban legends, actually. They're But it is urban legend fodder. Yes, it is. It's how the urban legend gets started. And we will be having a digital meetup soon, so make sure to check that out. Right, and Patreon is a huge, huge thing for us. We're super excited about it. We're so thankful for the people who are contributing. So I wanted to make sure that I mentioned here that if you are interested in seeing any particular kind of rewards on Patreon, or if there's something you're looking for, if you want some kind of special apparel, or if you want a coffee cup or a shower curtain or whatever it is let us know and we'll take those suggestions into account because we're always looking to tweak and make sure that patreon works for everybody and that everyone's getting something that they value out of it and also we do want to hear from you want to hear your urban legends you can email us at justastorypod.com you can reach out to us on any of that social media or you can call the urban legend hotline and if you call the urban legend hotline you will hear a brief message from jake and i and then you will be asked to leave us a longer message in which you tell us a fabulous story that will compel us to change everything we have planned for the next six months and do that immediately that really happens yeah it really does yeah so give us a call and Before we go any further, let's do a little affirmation. Let's tell everyone how beautiful they are and that we're very proud of them for what they did last week. We heard about it. That was a really cool thing. He pulled that guy out of the burning building? Well, that one guy did, but not everybody could do that. How many burning buildings do you think there are in the world? A lot soon. Oh, Jacob, this is a terrible plan. I see how it's all unfolding. This This feels like a bad omen. A bad omen, you say? A bad omen. (laughs) Trials and tribulations. I do. So this week, we are going to do a just the movie, at least the start of it. Right. And start with... The tale of the omen. 
Hugh Gregorian chants. And ominous tones. And so we kind of view this almost as a companion episode to our last Angels episode, which you will not have had to listen to, to listen to this episode, but you will see how they very much blend together. Right. When we started to do Angels, I was like, I don't know. I feel like it's lighter than some of the things we covered. I was like, if we do it, we have to do like demons next. And we did because we can't stand to leave you on a high. But these aren't, this is not exactly about a demon. And we'll definitely get into that. So the movie at hand today, The Omen. Right. And so this is a movie that came out in 1976. On June. Six. Of 76. Six, six, six. Ah, scariest number in history. Great marketing. Fantastic marketing. They spent a ton on marketing. So if you've not seen the film, I'll give you a kind of brief summary. And if you've seen the more recent one, which I actually think is really good, then you'll still, you have a very good gist of what happens. It pretty much follows the plot. Right. I just, I like the new one too. I just have a problem with Cotton from Scream being the dad. And I want to call him Cotton Mather every time I see him. Leave Schreiber or whatever. Saber He's also Sabretooth. I know. I liked him in that. I liked him as Hugh Jackman's other tiger cub partner BFF. thing. Like they're hottest bears ever, those two. So in this movie, the main character is Robert Thorne. He's an American diplomat and ambassador in Rome. And it starts off at the hospital. His wife is just given birth. But unbeknownst to his wife, their son was stillborn. So the priest, Father Spoleto, convinces Robert Thorne, played by Gregory Peck, to secretly adopt this baby boy whose mother just died and not to tell the mom. God will forgive this deception, he tells him. On this night, God gave you a son. Fun f- I'm going to come in with some trivia fun facts here. The name of the hospital is Ospedal de Cappuccini, and it's a, a, a Capuchin monk hospital. And it is referenced only later in Italian to the cab driver, but I went and tracked it down and found out the name of it because I am a crazy human. Robert Thorne in the original script was going to mention that Kathy had already had two miscarriages. And it's alluded to in it's the movie. It's alluded to. They're like, we want it to have our own. Right, but that could just mean, like, we don't want to adopt, which is, you know, not exactly the same thing. But it's definitely very much implied that they've been trying and trying for, trying for a child. Like, you have that run throughout the Bible. And so, they adopt the child. They name him Damien. Damien. Which, if I ever see a kid named Damien, I'm like, why? You know what that means. Like, Dam- that Damien Eccles changed his name to Damien. I'm like, you can say that it was the leper colony Hawaiian dude all you want. We know you saw the omen. We all know you saw the omen. So, Robert Thorne's character is appointed the ambassador to the United Kingdom, and they move to London. So, a few years pass, and it's now Damien's fifth birthday. And this is when things start to get weird. Weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ominous. It's when things start to get ominous. They see black dogs at the birthday party. So the black dog is actually a huge fixture in English folk custom. It goes throughout the world, but specifically these black dogs that we're seeing, the shape and mass and everything of them, they're very linked to various different forms of devil dogs throughout England. 
Which is a whole other episode. Yes, but they're definitely of the devil, and specifically in that area. Yeah, they're demon dogs. Mm-hmm. Also, his nanny... Who's not named in the script. Jumps from... The top of their estate. With a noose around her neck, saying, It's all for you, Damien. So great tragedy. And again, in the original screenplay, Kathy very much blamed herself for the nanny's death. And so she starts to become a little unhinged after this event, as one might. And Kathy's the mother. Correct. And so this stranger that appears is Miss Baylock. And she says that, oh, you know, the agency sent me. Presents references. uh, We heard that you might need help. It's in all the papers, which it is. And I could take care of Damien for you. And for some reason, they're like... Okay. Well, she hands them references, and they say they're going to check it out, but then shit keeps getting weirder and weirder, and they just don't have time to do the follow-up, Jacob. There's another scene where Damien violently resists entering a church, and another scene where they go to a safari park, and the baboons attack the car. Right. With Damien inside. Originally, it, he, there was going to be a scene with some lions and tigers, and they were like going to be cool with Damien and like really like him and stuff. That wasn't in the screenplay, but it was like something the producers talked about filming. Like they filmed footage with lions and stuff. And then more mysterious figures appear. You have the photographer, Keith Jennings, and a priest named Father Brennan. So the priest is just like this crackpot kind of guy, seeming, and he tries to warn Thorne that Damien is not human. And then later he tells him that Catherine is pregnant. And that Damien will prevent her from having the child. So this photographer has been taking photos of all these different people. And he sees shadows in the photos of the priest, later of the nanny, and himself. Right, the, not Miss Baylock, but the nanny who did commit suicide. So Father Brennan is quickly dispatched by a wild storm after he warns Thorn. And is impaled by a lightning rod. Right, and it matches the silhouette of the strange shadow that shows up in all of the photographs that Jennings takes of Brennan. Before Brennan dies, he does tell Thorne that the child will kill your wife, he will kill you, and he, as soon as he's sure that he can inherit everything that you have. And so that's why he won't tolerate another child, and that's why he's going to get rid of mom. And then get rid of Thorn. So there lots of prophecy of death thus far in the film. And so next you see Damien, in a way, try to kill his mother, Catherine, by riding his tricycle into her. And she falls from the second floor and thus has a miscarriage. So the photographer is seeing all these bad omens. Yes. <laughs> that fit in. And he's like, oh shit, I'm next. Because there's a photo of him in which there's his neck is like kind of bisected, I guess. So he's become very concerned with the goings on of the Thorn household and what this all means. So the photographer meets up with Thorn and they kind of share some information like we have to figure out what's going on. So they travel to Rome to investigate. They go to the hospital of the Capuchin monkeys. Of the Cappuccinos. It's Italy. Mm-hmm. Cappuccino. Cappuccino. Espresso. Espresso. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's one of my biggest pet peeves in the world. Don't do it. Don't be that guy. It's espresso. And they find out that the maternity ward and all of the records burned down. Guess how long ago? 
Five years ago. Five years ago, after Damien was adopted. Father Spoleto, the priest that kind of forced Damien onto Thorn, was entered in the fire, and they trace him down to the St. Benedict's Abbey, mute, blind, infirmed priest. Right, with half of his body melted, which is pretty good special effects good makeup, makeup. Mm-hmm. for 76. Yeah. It's very good. He's able to take a piece of charcoal... With his left hand. Yes. And scratch into the table this word. Servet. Which is an ancient Etruscan burial ground. So they go there and they're able to find Damien's mother's grave. They dig it up and they find the body of a... Jackal! A jackal. His mother was a... Spoiler alert. Jackal. But then they dig up the grave next to it, and they find... Because it says Bambina Schiana. And they find a newborn's remains with the skull bashed in. Right. And so Thorn pieces together that they his wife gave birth to a healthy child, and they killed it, and gave him Damien. And so everything becomes begins to look more sinister. And so as they're finding out this information, they are attacked by a pack of wild dogs. Interestingly enough, some of the major imagery on the walls of the Etruscan burial ground, which is a real place, are reliefs of a certain three-headed hellhound. Cerebus. That's the one. So in the meantime, Miss Balak, our evil nanny that comes out of nowhere, manages to kill Catherine, Damien's adoptive mother, By throwing her out of the hospital window. Yes, she does. And that is quite unfortunate. It's very sad. But word reaches Robert in Rome. And so now they really have a lot of information that's making this look sinister, like you said. And so they travel to Israel to find Karl Bugenhagen. Right. This is another thing that the priest told him to go to Megadio in Israel and find Karl Bugenhagen. So when he finds Bugenhagen, an archaeologist and antichrist expert, right. how'd you like that on your card? Originally, he was scripted as a ninth generation exorcist who was the, a descendant of the 17th century Reformation leader that taught Martin Luther. And he says he's the last and the least of the line. So he had more providence, I think, in the, the original intention. So Bugenhagen tells them some important information that in order to know that his son is the Antichrist, that Damien will have a mark on him somewhere. Just like the little priest did. That says 666. The scariest number of all time. And he says, I've bathed him. I know every inch of him. It's not there. Look under his hair. He's like, oh, the hair. He was born with lots of hair. It's always been there covering this dark, mysterious omen. So he also tells him that he must kill him. With seven mystical daggers from Megadio, and it must be done on sacred ground. On God's altar. Thorn is just disgusted by the idea of killing his son. A child. And he throws the daggers. I mean, this is Gregory Peck. This is motherfucking Gregory Peck. This is Atticus motherfucking Finch we're talking about. He does not believe in doing the wrong thing. And so, Heath, the photographer who knows his death is coming, he has seen the photos. Stakes are high. Stakes are high for Keith. He goes to get the stakes, <laughs> the right. daggers, and when he's retrieving them, he is summarily 
decapitated. Yes. In a very brutal and incredible feat of special effects. They His head flies off. There's a whole thing. Slow motion. Very 1970s cinema. Congratulations, fellas. You did it. So Robert Thorne returns home with the daggers in hand. And he gets there. Of course, it's the cover of darkness. Mm. Damien is sleeping. He is able to cut Damien's hair and finds... Six, six, six. The mark of the beast. Bum, 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 bum. So whenever he finds this, he freaks out. Everything's coming together. Prophecies are true. He quickly picks up the kid to take him out, but is attacked by Miss Balak. Fantastic character. And she's been very prim the entire time. And here she comes at him like a wild beast. So in the struggle, Thorne kills the evil nanny. So he's now definitely on the side of evil. And he grabs Damien. Damien screaming, don't hurt me, daddy. You know, terrible things <laughs> that would just strike at the heart of any father. Throws him in the car. is like holding him down as he drives erratically. He drives from his home past the guards. The guards kind of freak out that the ambassador's car is driving erratically out of there. And so the police take chase. Now... Thorne gets to the church, brings Damien in, brings him to the altar, and as he is about to kill the Antichrist, or his son if he's wrong, (laughs) the police come in, and before he's able to place the first dagger, he is shot. Which, I did not realize Bobby's had guns, but okay, I'll go with it, maybe they're special Special Bobbies. So he's killed by a special Bobby. And then the final scene is the revelation of the two caskets. And we see Kathy and Robert side by side. And Damien's holding someone's hand. He's holding the hand of Robert's old roommate. The president of of the the United United States. States. So he's alive and now ensconced in the protections and services afforded to those living in the White House. All right, it's a great little twist ending that he does still end up in even greater power than he already was. Everything worked out, and he inherits all of Robert's wealth. Exactly. And so this movie was released in 1976. Like you said, on 6676. It was directed by Richard Donner, who is an amazing director, who would go on to direct Superman. Right. And Superman 2, some of it. It was written by David Seltzer. Who was uncredited, but wrote Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I did not know that. No wonder they're both so demonic. Right? I loved both of these movies when I was younger. (laughs) And so even though it had a budget of like two and a half million dollars, it grossed $232 million. It had two Oscar nominations and one win for best score. That's the aforementioned Gregorian chance. It's kind of overscored, but it's okay. It's fun. It's the 70s. So on the 14th of September, 1975, you know, a news item came out announcing that Gregory Peck had been cast in the role of Robert Thorne. This kind of took everybody by surprise because he had been in retirement for seven years. And he is known for playing the stalwart hero. And this is a very controversial role with very dark tones and themes yeah and so the 20th century fox was like we can't have him play the main character you know who they originally had in mind for it who charlton heston 
Oh, now he could he could do deranged real easy. Can Moses kill the Antichrist? Is that allowed? That's perfect. <laughs> the question is, can bright eyes? Oh my god, I just thought about how great it would be when he realizes what's happening. If he okay, I, no, I love Gregory Peck in the role, but oh my god, Charlton Heston wouldn't have been bad either. If they're all in the same universe and he's unable to kill the Antichrist, and then he's sent off on a ship. And then the world has ended, and now it's taken over by apes. Or Gregory Peck failed at his task, and now Charlton Heston's got to go clean up his mess. The movie was originally called Birthmark. Which is not great. Yeah, they had a really good decision to change it. And it was filmed on location, lots of places in England and Rome and Israel. And the California Grad School of Theology at Glendale presented a special award to the filmmakers during its June 9th, 1976 commencement ceremonies for daringly taking a step into a new type of dramatization of a biblical doctrine. Oh, so they were like, good documentary, you guys. Good documentary. Interestingly enough, Seltzer stated that he did not believe in, nor was he interested in, the devil. And merely wrote the script for commercial reasons. He said he was very, 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 very broke. And he wanted to go to England. Yes. <laughs> That's why he said it there. But he said he had never opened a Bible before in his life when he was approached to write the film. And he had previously been a documentarian. He would only take on projects in which he could learn something. And so originally he said no, because he was like, I don't think I could learn anything from that. He said, what am I talking about? I know nothing about the Bible. I'll learn about the Bible. I learned about skiing for that documentary I did. Same, same. Same, same. And so he did. He learned about the Bible, but he wouldn't do any of the sequels because he didn't think he could learn anything. And he started his career with National Geographic traveling around with Jacques Cousteau. Jealous. Fun fact. So after the movie came out, you know, you see some people like, this is great portrayal of doctrine. Of course, the Catholic Church comes out. Tisk tisk, they say. And give it a B rating, which doesn't sound bad, but it's actually just short of a complete condemnation. <laughs> just short. Just short. Church officials claim that the film erroneously implied that its prophecy of an antichrist was in the book of Revelation and claimed that the film's prophecy sounded more like the verses by mystic Nostradamus. Well, that's true. That's true. We're going to get into that. One interesting fact is that in 1977, uh, there was a variety news item talking about the Publication Approval Board, which is a censor board in South Africa, and they changed the film's endings to depict Thorne preparing to stab Damien, giving the impression that good has triumphed over evil. Right. They're like, oh, the killing the kid thing, that's fine. That's okay. But come on, are we really going to let the Antichrist get by without being stabbed on the altar of god could we possibly allow that sure nowadays you go well they have to have sequels but back then it wasn't such a thing although this movie did go on to have many sequels Mm -hmm. following the antichrist none of which were worked on by the original crew no i mean back in the day remember the sequels were all terrible and so you have to remember this movie came out kind of in succession with the exorcist which we've covered and rosemary's baby which we probably will cover so Roger Ebert, in his review of the time, said, What Jesus was to the 1950s movie epic, the devil is to the 1970s. And so all of this material is approached with the greatest solemnity, not only in the performance, but also in the photography, the music, and the very looks on people's faces. He gave it two out of three stars. When I saw that he gave it two stars, 
I was quite concerned, but then I realized he only gave three. A producer named Bob Munger originally pitched the idea of doing one of those devil movies, but he cautioned that he didn't think the devil wanted him to make this movie. So why'd he pitch it? Because it was going to sell like bagels, Jacob. And it did. Yeah. So in later interviews, both Munger and Bernhard recalled how they predicted the curse in these early moments. Munger recalls his words. Wait. The curse? The curse. Oh, yes. What's, what is a, a creepy, scary movie without a curse? I mean, that's not even fun. Bad marketing. Right? Munger recalls his words of warning. I said, if you make this movie, you're going to have some problems. If the devil's single greatest weapon is to be invisible, and you're going to do something which is going to take away his invisibility to millions of people, he's not going to want that to happen. The devil was at work, and he did not want that film to be made. So just like other movies we've talked about dealing with kind of the satanic and demons and etc., this movie has a curse, too. Of course it does. So the first thing that's cited in the internet canon, the list that appears on every blog for this, is that Gregory Peck's son committed suicide. And sometimes you'll see it said it happened while they were filming. It didn't. Not true. It happened before they started filming. And I think before he was officially attached to the role, because that piece came out saying that he'd taken the role in August and his son killed himself in June. It's thought that he even took the role as this like troubled father after that experience. To deal with it. And it may be why he kind of was urged out of retirement. So yes, that did happen, but is it related to the movie or does it just get put on the list? We'll see. We're going to go through and talk about each of these claims. And then there was much lightning. Peck's plane was supposedly struck by lightning on the way to England to film. Mark Newfield, who was an executive producer, was on another flight that was struck by lightning. And in an interview on the Omen DVD extra, one of the producers claims that Seltzer's plane was also struck by lightning. But Seltzer says, you full of bullshit. That's silly. Seltzer's very dismissive of, of this curse. So wait, did lightning strike them? There's no way to verify. So no news reports found. No, but lightning hits planes pretty often. It wouldn't have. I guess you're right. It wouldn't be, be newsworthy. Yeah, it would have been newsworthy if they actually crashed. So Bernhardt scheduled a private flight to go up and do a little filming over Surrey, but the craft was switched at the last minute, and reportedly it crashed upon takeoff, killing everyone in the plane. Did that happen? Sorta. Okay. It was switched last minute. A group of Chinese businessmen came in and all gave an alias. All of them had this like a same the same alias and it was super secret and they had security detail and they didn't want records kept and all of this stuff. And they were coming to maybe buy this little plane for the government. And so it was very hush hush and very abrupt. The plane took off. It was piloted by a man who was called Cat Eyes. Ooh. Ooh. And he ran into some birds. Goose? Yes, he hit Goose. And then Maverick the, said to Iceman, Ice <laughs> Cat Eyes, Cat Eyes is going down. He's run into Goose. But anyway, he did hit hit some birds. They, they clogged the engine. But he was able to land the flight, but not before the wing tipped into a car that was driving off the base that was full of school children. Were there nuns, too? No nuns, just school children, and six of the children died. Oh, shit. And two of the kids were like the daughters of one of his very close friends and co-workers. But it's sometimes reported as the wife, being the wife and child 
of the pilot and everyone on board dying, which is a bit of exaggeration, but this was a terrible tragedy that was, you know, during that space of time. And we've confirmed that in news reports. We've confirmed that from Britain's aeronautic reporting agency. I have the official government documentation. And then the IRA was bombing up some some England at this moment. Oh, yeah. And so there were a lot of bombings reported. So Newfield, who was one of the producers, was staying in the Hilton in London, which was bombed by the IRA on the 5th of September, 1975. And that is during filming, but luckily he and his family were not there. But the room that they were staying in was destroyed. And yes, that did happen. And then there was another incident in which the crew reported being on their way to a restaurant to go eat and finding out en route to that restaurant that the place had been bombed. Now, because I don't have the name or location of the place where they had the reservation or claimed to have had the reservation, I cannot confirm that exactly. But there was a bombing in a commercial area that does line up with the dates of filming. That was on August 28th of 75. And then Bernhardt also says that they are walking by the Green Park Station and moments later it was bombed. And the Green Park Station was bombed. I cannot tell you if they were walking by it or not. But did he really do the research? I mean, I I don't know. Those things get funny in memory. But there were a lot of bombings. They could have been bombed by the IRA, but they were filming in England. And the IRA IRA was was doing the bombing thing. So, you know, was that the curse or was that just, you know, business as usual? Now, I brought up the lions earlier when we were talking about the baboons, because this is a very important detail. There are claims that an animal trainer was mauled by tigers the day after filming, and he had worked on the scene with the lions. Oh, shit. And there are various different stories about what happened, but I can confirm from a news report that Sidney Bamford was mauled by a tiger that had been born in captivity and trained and never had a bad day in its life on November 5th, 1975. The, and he worked with the baboons on the film. Well, people say that. I can't find... Like, he seems to have been in with the tigers, but I don't know if everybody just kind of came out to work with the animals on the day that the film crew was there. But he worked with the lions that were in cut footage. But there was somebody from the safari park that was mauled by a tiger in a freak accident during the filming at the place where they filmed. And so then you get things lumped in after. They say the curse followed them. Of course. John Richardson, who had done the special effects for the movie, including that amazing decapitation scene, was driving in the Netherlands while he was filming A Bridge Too Far with Richard Donner, the follow-up project to The Omen. And he had a horrible car accident, and the woman in the car with him was killed and in a very similar manner to the way that Keith Jennings was killed on camera. And there are reports that state that there was a sign that said, Omen 666. Like it was 66.6 kilometers. To the town of Omen, I think with two M's or two N's. And I have confirmed that the car accident did happen. The woman who was killed was named Liz Moore, and she was she's always listed as his girlfriend and like nothing else. And that always drives me a little insane because she's actually the woman that sculpted all of Stanley Kubrick's props, like the star child and the mannequins and the milk dispensers for uh, clockwork orange. She to get one of those. Yeah, no, it's a little too modern art for our five year old. And she actually designed the stormtrooper helmets and C3PO's suit. So she was really cool. She was 32. She had a son. 
very sad. But she, it was on Friday the 13th of August of 76. And it was near the town? It was in the Netherlands, and that town is in the Netherlands. So it could have been near the it town. It could have been. Of Omen. But it, it did happen. And then Alf Joint, who has a name that sounds like something from a video game, was a stuntman on the Omen. And while working on A Bridge Too Far with Richard Donner, he was standing up and he was just supposed to jump off a building and land on a balloon. Like, it would be the equivalent of just getting in my car and backing up, you know, for a stuntman. And he fell. And later he said that he felt like he'd been pushed off the top of the building. He did not jump like he was supposed to. And that is confirmed on, like, a Bridge Too Far's trivia page like unrelated to the omen curse so i I buy it not the pushing thing can't find that original interview but he did get injured and then donner was almost hit by a car while he was getting out of producer bernhardt's car he got pinned between like two open doors Hmm, that's spooky (laughs) right and i he confirms that in an interview and donner is also very skeptical of the curse since he's Jewish. <laughs> Seltzer's Jewish, too, so they're both very skeptical. So this is such an interesting movie. Because of the time that it came out, the focus on demons and Satan and evil was just really coming up and really a hot topic in pop culture. We've seen in the interviews that they take it really seriously, and some people are like, this is ridiculous. It's not at all what the actual Antichrist story is right it is the piece of poetry that the priest quotes in the film is completely original to seltzer like that is not i mean he's primary source material there that's not from the bible right and seltzer when in an interview was asked is concern over the end time still a concern for americans in your view and he says i think probably everyone who is of the christian religion in the world given not only the religious wars that are going on, but the terrible degradation of society and biology and everything that saves life on this planet, are probably believing that if such a thing is ever going to happen, we are on the brink. We've been on the brink, though. We continue to be on the brink for the last few millennia. Yeah, but that's a technicality, I mean. No, it's not at all. It's (laughs) actually a huge component of Antichrist lore. There's this idea of, like, psychological eminence that's so important. There's no reason to worry about the Antichrist if you don't think it's about to happen. True. And so the study of the end times is something called eschatology. And that's kind of what we'll be talking about today, specifically about the Antichrist. And the end of the world as we know it. So the roots of the Antichrist come from Judaism. They come from hell, Jacob. They come from hell. What are you trying to say? That the Jews didn't invent it, they just documented it. Oh, of course. So the idea of an anti-Messiah comes from Second Temple Judaism, which ranges from 3rd century BCE to 70 CE. This idea really focused on individuals or groups that were opposed to the hoped-for Messiah. And there were many different apocalypses written at the time, and those could include like a journey through heaven and hell, or reveal a temporal secret about the course of history. And they would often include present-day evil as a sign of the crisis of history. Wait, how does that work? Well, I'll give you an example. 
So Daniel is a book in the Bible. It's also a dude. Where's right. the coffee shop? Hi, Daniel. The Apocalypse of Daniel, which is from chapter 7 through 12, is the only Judaistic apocalypse included in the Bible. And so this is a great example of history as prophecy, which we will see over and over again. It seems sort of antithetical, one might say, history and prophecy. But let's see how, how, we, uh, how we make these two jive. So Daniel was supposedly written in 6th century BCE, so a very old book. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. It was written much more recently in this idea of things. And so in Daniel, I'm going to read you a little bit. We're going to get our Bible on. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. Was it cowardly? The lion? Mm-hmm. Possibly. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was looking at the horns, there before me was another horn. A little horn. A little horn. It's cute. It's the petite little horn. Did it sing, if I were the king of the forest? Well, it did have a mouth. That's what it said, then. I'm sorry. We need to go no further. Well, it spoke boastfully, so that does fit. (laughs) Okay. It's possible. I think we've just solved that the Wizard of Oz is actually a Judeo-Christian apocalypse film i i agree so like i said this was history disguised as prophecy and if you were reading this at the time you would recognize this different symbolism right and interestingly enough the wizard of oz was written as a critique of the silver standard and all of the figures did stand for political entities i did not know that that's why you keep me around so the four beasts of the future empires mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are Babylonia. Which is the lion. Medea. Which is the bear. Persia. It's the four-winged leopard beast. And also the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Which is the one with all the horns. And of course that being the worst. It has a little horn. It does have a little horn. What the hell? It's like Timmy, who lives in my mouth. From The Shining. Danny. (laughs) It's okay, Danny. It's okay, Alexander. We'll get the next time. So the little horn at this time represents Antiochus IV. And he was a Hellenistic ruler of Syria. So under the great evil empire of Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. And who had iron teeth that destroyed everything. Mm -hmm. And Antiochus 
began this violent persecution of the Jews in 167 BCE to compel them to adopt Greek customs. He captured Jerusalem, he sacked the temple, he banned Jewish practices, and then he even erected a statue of Zeus in the temple. The temple? Like with a T? With a big T temple? Oh, yeah. Was it pretty? Check your Bible. It's in there. Damn, damn, I forgot my Bible. When I was a kid, we had those like childcraft encyclopedias, you know, all the different colors. Everybody, I bet, I bet 6% of our listeners at least had a set of those. And, you, and there was an Antichrist section there? No, there wasn't. No, there was one on the, t- the Wonders of the World, Seven Wonders of the World. And there was an entry about the Temple of Zeus. And I remember reading about it and like, fi- and like realizing that the little figures at the bottom were people and how huge it would have been. And I, as I read to the end, it was like it was destroyed whenever. And I remember just sitting in my mom's bedroom on her floor and crying when I read that because I would never get to see it. <laughs> I was like seven. (laughs) Well, so this terrible ruler led to the revolt of the Maccabees. Okay. So all in the Bible. Get back to your Sunday school. So the little horn is very much a representation of Antiochus IV. And it is supported in millennial old text that that is the reading of it. Okay. And so that is, he's the little horn because he is one fixture of this larger empire. Right, but, but he's kind of the leader of, of it. Yeah. yeah, like it kind of directs. Exactly. Okay. Of the other ten kind of kingdoms out of the mm. other horns. And it's little because he was an asshole. And they said, he can't be the big horn. He's going to be the little horn. Fuck that guy. They were giving him like little penis right there. Did you know that people do that in novels nowadays? Michael Crichton invented it. What? So where he'll like, someone that he doesn't like, like he had a bad reviewer. Mm-hmm. And he gave a character... This pretty much the same name in the next book and described him as like just a terrible description and having like a little penis. Ah. And he said, this is the best way to get back at somebody because no one is going to sue you for saying you have a little penis. <laughs> so our little penis, little horn is basically destroying Judaism and everything it stands for. So what happens? How do we get rid of the little horn? What happens? What happens? So in Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So... Enter the hero to vanquish all the bad kingdoms. This is Messiah. So we've got the the big shiny Messiah. Yes. So this apocalypse of Daniel is seen as a kind of literature of consolation. And it's saying like, oh, look, we prophesized this. We've been talking about this forever. It happened. It's okay. It's okay. It's just four years. It's just 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 four years. It's just four years, guys. We'll make it. Yeah. No, I think you're you're getting off track. (laughs) Oh. And, you know, in the end, after all this terribleness, the Messiah comes and saves everybody. So it's also supporting the goodness of God and he has control over everything. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. And that he let Jesus take the wheel, they say. There's no Jesus yet. Let Yahweh take the wheel, they say. There's no wheel yet. Let Yahweh take the reins, they say. (laughs) And it was an important aspect of writing at the time, Judaistic writing, that God was in control of all of this, that the good and the evil. You know, Isaiah, who wrote during the Babylonian exile, wrote, I am Yahweh and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. Wow, we've kind of lost that one in the, you know, in our readings and 
interpretations of things in the Christian tradition, we've kind of done away with that idea a little bit. So, you know, you mentioned the, the great warrior enters. But, mighty to, mouse. Yeah, to battle the little horn. He just steps on him. It's done. And so, he says, shh. Stop singing that song. So, throughout apocalyptic writing, you see these very myth-like features. Okay. Actually, we have the incredible beast. We have the series of four different, well-imagined, extremely creative, chimera-like beast. And then we have the hero figure who is coming to vanquish these Herculean labor-looking things. And we do... And then things are groovy. Right, and so there's a huge influence in this writing of Near Eastern combat myth, which is a narrative of struggle between a high god and the monster of chaos, usually in the time of creation. Is the monster's name chaos? So there are parallels in Babylon, especially Canaanite versions of this specific story. The earliest incident is of the Akkadian in late 2nd millennia BCE, uh, which has a struggle between Marduk, the champion of the gods, and Tiamat, the female dragon of the waters of chaos, who heads the older divine powers. Some monstrous feminine shit happening in there. A little bit. A little bit. Maybe so. The woman who emerges from the waters, really. But why these are different than these old combat myths is that they start to incorporate history. Mm-hmm. And prophecy. So when they incorporate history, they actually transcend myth and become legend. Legends usually feature people who are believed to have once been alive. Right, they're kind of set in the real world. Mm-hmm. A lot more, at least. They're more pedestrian. It's like today's Batman versus Adam West's Batman. Yeah. And so this is where we get that, like, history as prophecy. Okay. So by incorporating these ideas, the struggle of Israel and its persecutors becomes part of that, like, primordial struggle between good and evil, darkness and light. It's politicized. It is. But it takes that mythological idea to do it. I know nothing of this in the current age. Never. So one Jewish community, the Qumran community who lived by the Dead Sea, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. Um, discussed Belial, or Belier, the prince of demons, and his fight against the army of angels led by Michael. Right, so, and this is sort of Baal, right? Baal or Baal? Maybe. So some texts state that they awaited the arrival of two prophets, a priestly messiah of mm-hmm. Aaron, and more of a leader messiah of Israel from the house of David. Okay. So that's going to be your Moses and your Jesus. Later. (laughs) Sorry, spoiler alert. But in this tradition, Belial is truly like a demon leader. But he has humans under him working for him. Right, he's charismatic and like in charge of that side of things. Yeah, and so those human leaders can be like anti-Messiah-like things. So we're already separating from that idea of God is good and evil. God is angry Jewish God. We're getting away from that idea. And so, as we come through time, we come to Christianity. And so this is when you truly get an antichrist, because you can't have an antichrist without... A Christ, just like you can't have Bizarro Superman without a Superman. Correct. And so, 
according to some Jews in the first century, this guy comes along, and he's the Messiah. But according to others, meh. Not so much. Yeah, he's just a schmuck. Cool dude, but he was not on fire and seven feet tall and shiny. Where are his six wings? Next. So, in theory, in order to have a Christ, a God-man return, he would have to have some sort of opposition. And this would have to be kind of the epitome of human evil. So early Christians really focused on that perusia, the return of Christ. I mean, of course, we still talk about today, mm-hmm. but they thought it was coming like tomorrow. Well, I mean, you're in the thick of it. You think like this just happened. Why not again? Not that's 2000 years ago. Why now? Right. No, exactly. It's like, oh, that happened 30 years ago. This I is remember. coming. Yeah. He'll be back. And so in the Bible, you have two main apocalypses. And so the first being in Mark 13, which is called the Little Apocalypse. Why are they like making everything diminutive? It's just shorter. (laughs) So Apocalypse is the end of the world, right? Well, it's the end of current history. Okay. So in Mark 13, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he. And will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes and places and famines. They are the beginning of the birth pains. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So this little apocalypse, which I just took a few verses from, also predicts the fall of the temple. Right, right. Because that's how it starts. They're like, look at the temple. And he's like, those stones will be in the streets. Mark my words. And they do. And that happens in 70 CE. And you also have... Three important elements that become the kind of... Pillars? Yeah. Pillars, cornerstones of the Antichrist. And so that is that he will come saying he is Christ. He will have an abomination of desolation. So it's kind of the wars and things. He will just make everything suck. And that there will be false Christs and false prophets. And they will be able to produce signs and miracles, but their power will not be divine. And so Paul, writing in Second Thessalonians, says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. So that's something that's later known as the restraining force. Okay. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So the lawless one equals Antichrist? Yes. So he's going to say, like, I am above religion. I don't need religion. I am God. Right, so in this one, Paul combines all those ideas of the separate people that Jesus is talking about into one Entity, being. yeah. Yes. And notice that none of these say the word 
Antichrist. Right. Where do we get Antichrist? Well, we will get to that, but it is an... It's only mentioned in one book of the Bible. We'll get to that. So this combines all the elements into one figure. It combines motifs of rebellion, blasphemy, deception. One guy. And they're all the work of Satan. So interestingly enough, there's the ideas of like the symbolism of evil in these figures. So like we said, you can't have an antichrist without Christ. So a lot of times Christ is kind of the new Adam. He's human 2.0. He's human that doesn't fall to original sin. Right, and so you have the first Adam, Adam. Who, and he fucks everything up. He's like the root of all evil. Right, he's why we have evil in the world, supposedly. Well, Eve. Of course. Let, let's not let's not make it all Adam's fault. I wouldn't want for a man to uh, come unduly under scrutiny. Well, I mean, actually. He doesn't menstruate. Filthy. So in order to have salvation through our new Adam, Jesus... We have to have final victory and ultimate salvation achieved with defeat of the last and most evil of Adams. So the worst man. Right, like pure evil incarnate. Who doesn't atone for doing wrong, who feels like sociopathy. We, we think <laughs> the ultimate evil psychopath, sociopath dude. It has to be human. Apparently because, it has to be a man. Right. But he mentions it specifically, but in Christianity, evil and good are not these equal forces like you see in old mythology. Mm-hmm. God's always got the upper hand. Why? Because he has to. I mean, it just sounds like screenwriting. Like, oh, well, you're going to need an antagonist. So while you see in the writings of Daniel, supposedly, the Antichrist presented of this true historical figure... Mm. Antiochus. His name even sounds right. Right. Then you can kind of extrapolate that the this Antichrist that's being discussed in Mark and in Thessalonians and then later in Revelation is based on someone. And so who at this time when these things were being written in the first century CE was the ultimate evil persecuting the Christians. Oh, I know. Me, me. Yes. Nero. You in the back. Nero. It's Nero. It's Nero. It's Nero all the kinds of ways. Who's Nero? An emperor of Rome who fiddled while Rome burned. That's just a story. Because I know. I know. there weren't fiddles. Well, yeah. <laughs> it was easy. Well, and also he was not in Rome when the fire in circus maximus started he did sing a little but people say it was a lament but this guy even though he may not have started the great fire of rome was not exactly a messiah-like figure he thought he was so many legends around our great emperor nero he succeeded claudius and he ascended to power in 54 ce through lots of death lots of death there was a skosh of death he was sort of a megalomaniac. He was very cruel. Supposedly, oh, we have so many legends about Nero, and it's very hard to debunk anything from, you know, 54 to 68 CE. So we're going to go with it. We're going to go with it. We'll talk about things, but we're just going to assume the worst because that's fun to do. So he was very bloodthirsty and violent as a child, he liked to put on a disguise and kill people who argued with him. When he got older, he liked to engage in games at the Colosseum, dressing as an 
an animal wearing skins and attacking people bound to stakes. In specific, he liked to bite their genitals off. Oh, this is healthy. It's, it's going well. This is going well. And there was a female serial killer called Locusta, who was a poisoner, who I think just kind of poisoned everybody that people told her to poison, and maybe a little extra, but she killed several people. And legend has it that he had her publicly raped to death by a giraffe. A giraffe? A giraffe. Bullshit. It is bullshit. It actually is, but it doesn't matter. It's so good. But this is the reputation of the guy. And if you don't live immediately in the area and you weren't there to see it, why not? Like I can see how even at the time people would believe it. He came to power after someone ate a poisoned mushroom. Fed to them by his mother. Yeah. Probably. Agrippa was her name. She was with him every step of the way the first couple of years because he's like 19 when he became emperor. And she was very, very involved politically. And Seneca didn't care for this. And Seneca was one of his advisors. And as she became more of a political force, Seneca and others saw the need to have her removed. Dispatched. Dispatched. So at this point, we have a young Nero ordering the dispatching of his own mother. This is called matricide. This is looked upon with little favor throughout much of the world and especially Rome. The mother was a very important symbolic figure and to do away with her might be seen as, you know, despicable. However, Nero did do away with his mother, Agrippa. He tried to have her ship sunk, which was cute, because she just swam to shore. So there are so many tales, so many, so many versions of this. And according to the historian Cassius Dio, Nero sent his mother off on a custom-designed ship. And while she was out at sea, a secret door under the ship opened up and sent her falling into the depths of the water. So, like a vaudeville trap door. Right. It's so ridiculous. He just, like, he probably did have his mom killed. He probably just had someone go stab her or sleep or whatever. But, like, this is just the most ridiculous. But if you look at it through this lens of these writers, these, like, detractors, they're trying to paint him as the most evil man mm-hmm. possible mm-hmm. and conniving. Well, he does connive her next. He has his, He just sends people to do it. In some versions of the story, when she sees them coming, she's like, tell them I recovered well from my last accident. And if you come and say that Nero sent you to do this, not my Nero. He would never. He would never do this to his mother. But do what you have to do. Just get it over with, basically. And in other accounts she says smite my womb that's so great (laughs) she means like monstrous feminine start there because i gave birth to this monster and now look what it got me and then he married octavia who's the daughter of claudius because that cemented his claim to the throne he seceded over britannica who was claudius's son right this was all arranged by Mother dearest. Mommy dearest did did do this for him. And he also died from poisoning Britannica, the brother, soon after Nero came to power. Possibly. Lots of poison. So much poison. This is why they were tasters. So one of my favorites, Suetonius, writes this quote. 
After several vain attempts to strangle her, he divorced her on the grounds of barrenness. When people took it ill and openly reproached him, he banished her besides, and he finally put her to death on a charge of adultery that was so shameless and unfounded that when all who were put to torture maintained her innocence, he bribed his former preceptor, Anicetus, to make a pretended confession that violated her chastity by a stratagem. Oh my. Dude, brother, do me a solid. Hey, um... Say you fuck my wife. My wife. And so there are claims that he kicked his wife to death because she was pregnant, and that was the thing that the most evil man would do. But this is his next wife, Papinia, and there are actually documents that surfaced recently that like deify her and talk about his longing for her and things like that. So some people say that she may have just died and that got lumped on the pile of Nero as an asshole shit, which is possible. Well, and so he did write those poems. He thought he was like the best artist ever in the whole wide and world. And musician. Oh, and yeah, music- all of it. Just yeah. general. He and- probably invented the fiddle just to play it while we're unburned. Probably I'm defaming so. Nero. Mm, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's what he needs. More defamation. He doesn't have any, obviously. We're only like halfway through it. He would even like lock people in the theater <laughs> to listen to his performance. <laughs> that's how you know. He's Trump. Oh my God, he's Trump. <laughs> Three doors down, we performed at his inauguration. It was awesome. He made everyone listen to it. <laughs> if I go crazy, then we'll... Oh, wait. So this is an account of what was done to the Christians as retribution to their contributions leading to the great fire of Rome. History blames Nero, but Nero blamed the Christians. It's like, near scapegoat, near scapegoat, new. You're new. No one cares. Come see. So this is from Tacitus' account of what happened following the great fire. He says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to crosses, or doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as nightly illumination when daylight expired. If half of this is true, (laughs) he deserves to be the Antichrist. If I were a Christian and he were doing this to Christians, I would think he was the Antichrist for sure. And so one of the reasons that people thought that he had burned down part of Rome was because he needed the land to build his new palace. Oh, and it was super cool. It was a great palace. It would have been on HGTV. The Domus Aurea, it was called. It was a massive palace overlaid with gold because he was a dick, ivory and mother of pearl. And he built a 120 foot statue of himself with godlike qualities. In this palace, you know, there's the recounts of all the orgies, which you can see in that movie. That one movie that happened that one time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they had like vomitoriums and... What is uh, the... Wait, uh-huh. What? Is that where they kept the vultures? What's a vomitorium? Vomitorium. What is that where they kept the vultures? Oh, because they vomit. vomit. Yeah, no. No, so they would like eat so much and drink so much that they would then go like vomit and then go and eat and drink some more. Oh my god, we did that in the north end of Boston. Yeah. Yeah, went in Rome. Aww. So yeah, that seems like a good idea that's going to sit well with people who think gluttony is a sin. And then of course he built this temple whenever half of Rome had been burned down, and he was using all the money to build this ridiculous temple. That was shiny! It was shiny! Or castle, or palace. So yeah, he crucified Peter, 
which didn't go so well. And supposedly he crucified Peter upside down because Peter said, I am not fit to die in the same manner as my Lord. People would attend and cheer whenever he killed some Christians just for shits and giggles. And they did apparently serve as light during his parties when they were on fire. And they were often nailed to crosses and just hanging out in the middle of the vomitorium orgy party. What a way to go. Oh my God, it'd be so bitter. I would haunt the shit out of that man. So Tacitus also told a story about Nero throwing a massive orgy that went on for days. And at the end, Nero threw a mock wedding ceremony in which he married a freedman named Pythagoras, one of two men who Nero married throughout his lifetime. Why was it a mock wedding? (laughs) I have no problem with Nero marrying Pythagoras. Maybe they were just really progressive. According to Suetonius, whenever Nero wanted to let off a little steam, he would tie naked boys and girls to stakes and then dress up like an animal and jump on them. And then he would pretend to eat them. This is most likely a recreation of how criminals were executed at the time, with Nero pretending to be a vicious animal devouring a sentenced man in front of an audience. So he had flair. So eventually the Romans did have enough of his shit, and he was put up on charges. They were planning on executing him, and whenever he kind of found this out, he committed suicide. Right, he stabbed himself in the neck badly, apparently. Yes, or someone else did it. That he asked to do, of course. It says say assisted suicide most places, but I think that may just be another way to make him look bad. Right. Like, he couldn't, he couldn't even, even do, do it, it himself. Can't do anything right. She just never... I don't even understand. So he was definitely the first big persecutor of these new Jew-Christian-y things that are arising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so another myth came about at this time that Nero wasn't really dead. Why wouldn't he be dead? Well, he had made peace with the Parthians, mm-hmm. and people thought that he fled to Partha okay. and would you know, build up his armies and return to vanquish his enemies and take over Rome. That would have been awesome. Good plan. Well, so a lot of people thought it was a good plan. Uh-huh. He had several imposters over the time. What do you mean? Like people who were like, hey, I'm Nero. Yeah. I'm Nero. No, I'm Nero. I love to fucking dress like a wolf and try to eat people and vomit. It's him! It's him! He's back! Sing a little. Oh, no, you're too good of a singer. Oh, no, no, no. That would never do. And even in 88, there was an imposter that was nearly successful and almost began a war between Rome and Partha. I want to read that guy's like journal. I want to read his journal. Like, not the public accounts. I want to know. He's like, they're buying it. They're buying this shit. Can you believe it? Or be his buddy. Like, his one friend who knows. So, at the time, there's something called the Sibylian Oracles. All right. That's and, fancy. Yeah. So, what's an oracle? It's something that tells about omens or the future. And so, you had lots of pagan oracles. Like the one at Delphi. Right. Famous and, one. Yeah. It's mostly just fumes. But whatever. Hey, Whatever. So, all hot air. So you have these poetic imitations of pagan oracles that were created by these Jews, or now kind of Christian Jews, to show the superiority of their religion and predict the coming divine judgment of the Gentiles. So is it like a circus thing where it's like, oh... We're coming and we have clowns and elephants. And they're like, oh, well, we have clowns, elephants, and a tiger that rides a bicycle. Sure, whatever. So in these imitations, they, they were supposedly written at the time of Noah. 
Oh, well, that's a day or two ago. But they were more written in the first and second century. Oh, ye of little faith. And so one written in 100 CE talks about this kind of anti-Messiah, anti-Christ-like figure, saying that he will declare himself equal to God, which... Nero did, because he had, like, the statue. And also he was Caesar, which is God, kind of. Kind of. It was a cult of Caesar. He would be a, quote, savage-minded, mighty man, much bloodied. He was much bloodied. And raving nonsense. He did that a little. So they said that he would come and conquer Rome, Mm -hmm. then conquer Alexandria, and then come to attack Jerusalem. But he'd been forestalled by the king sent by God. And the text also describes him as Belair incarnate. So that idea from previously. Mm. But really, while that... Without a doubt, refers to Nero. But it was, like, written about Nero. Right. The true piece of work that is related to Nero as Antichrist is Revelations. But Revelations was divinely inspired and written at the time of Christ's crucifixion in, like, the next couple of days. No. Oh. So it was most likely... You mean my backwoods Baptist preacher lied to me? Yes. (sighs) Oh. So it was actually written kind of around turn of the next century, so around 100 mm. CE. It was written by the early Christian prophet John mm. in the last decade of the first century in Asia Minor. Turkey. Yeah, and he was very interested in how recent events, especially the Roman Empire, related to basic apocalyptic scenarios of crisis, judgment, vindication. That's kind of your basic pattern. That's it's always cyclical. Yeah. And so there are a lot of things in this book. There's no way we can go through everything. You could literally spend hours reading about all the symbolism in the book. It's we could do a whole podcast. Super interesting. Super, super interesting. Um, but we'll go through stuff related to the Antichrist. So in Revelation 11, God sends two witnesses to prophesy for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. Okay. So now when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. And then in Revelation 12, he talks about a great battle between the woman, kind of the queen of heaven, and the serpent. Hmm. Sound familiar? Chaos. Yeah. The woman from heaven. Right. She's the queen of heaven. I didn't know they let women into heaven. Uh, Mary went up. She's in heaven. It's You're in so Acts of the Apostles. You no, know, it's, it's not in my. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Go read it. Read your legend. Dude, we do not even believe in perpetual virginity. Let me just like start there. I know you don't. Ah, you're a terrible human. So there's a great battle. Battle between God's angels and Satan. And Satan is cast down to earth. So the dragon enraged in the, at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's command and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So is the Queen of Heaven Mary? Maybe. Okay. So the other part that discusses the Antichrist are the two beasts. Beast. Okay, so there were two big baddies, like two big bosses in in the Jewish video game. Right, so you have the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. And so this is from Revelation 13. Mm-hmm. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns. Again, with the horns. Seven heads. Oh, so they've just, like, incorporated the previous, all the heads. You had the four, and then you had the three, so now you have the seven. Seven heads. And with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head, a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. Oh. Had feet like a bear. 
Cool. Mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne of great authority. So we've just like kind of mishmashed all the former challengers to the throne. All of, the beasts. Right, yeah. And the beast represented the kingdoms. Right, so now we have one kingdom, one world government. So now you have the Roman Empire. Right. That's been consolidated under Nero. Exactly. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So people thought this was a representation of... Rising the, from the dead. Right, like, the fatal injury that Nero had. Where he got stabbed in the neck. And his return, or his like perusia, that everyone was worried about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some people later on, like Ibelitus in the 200s, thought that the repaired wounded head was just like the rebuilding of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Just kind of piecing it all back together. Yeah, that works. So people worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast had given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise its authority for 42 months. That's seven years. Yep. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who is, was slain from the creation of the world. So that Lamb, that's Jesus' book. That's Santa Claus's list from the creation of the world. So you get your first Adam, your second Adam, from the beginning of time. Everybody. That's everybody. That's everybody that's ever been good. So Christians are getting the short end of the stick and probably being like eaten by beasts in public or something. Wait a second. Wait a second. It's all very suspect. And he later, you know, kind of points out that it calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people to endure this beast. Mm-hmm. And so then you have the second beast, the beast out of the earth. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven. Oh, that's the, that's the fire. It's a Roman fire. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast and deceive the inhabitants of the earth. So this is that idea of the false prophet, but also, so these are like the pagan priests. Oh, these are his mouthpieces. These are his PR team. His imperial cult. Okay. The symbolism here is also present in that you have a unholy trinity of a dragon. The dragon would represent Satan, and Satan is the diametrically opposed force of God. And then you have the first beast. Which is the Antichrist. Which is the opposite of Christ. And then you have that mouthpiece, second beast. And that's one. like a false prophet, bad dude. Like he's the opposite of the guy who's writing this book. Well, the Holy Spirit. Okay, fine. That's what I said. The guy who's writing the book. It's divinely inspired. Got oh, it? Oh, you're right. Yeah? You're right. Yeah. yeah. There are also ties to the beast of the sea, Leviathan, and the beast of the land, Behemoth, Okay, which are two Jewish cosmic oppositions to god okay written about in your old testament okay which you did not read apparently i read mostly new testament and i liked psalms read a lot of psalms i grew up i grew back up in an evangelical church and of course here's you know another kicker that really ties it in 
Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. What is a human number? A human number? That number is 666. Oh my god, it's like the omen! It was predicting the omen. It was! Okay, no it wasn't. No it wasn't. Some manuscripts say 616. Yeah, but it was later kind of agreed upon that it was 666. Well, I mean, it just rolls off the tongue. So the general number symbolism is total imperfection. So 666 would be the opposite of the perfect number, which is 888 or 777, depending on who you at. Just not six. Just not, not six. six. Not six. No. no. So gematria is the art, science, whatever. Sure. Of calculating names according to the numbers signified by the letter. So in Hebrew, that would be N R W N Q S R. Which would be Nero Emperor. And that would be 666. Mm-hmm. So you can see that there's all the symbolism, all the actual discussion of the Antichrist is only in those two sections of Revelations. That's it? That's it. That's all we get? Yeah. Well, there's plenty more in there, don't you worry. No, but I mean about the Antichrist, it's such a giant deal. Every fringy blogger under an aluminum hat that has any sense of self-respect is speculated upon who the Antichrist might be. And we've just got two measly little mentions in Revelation. That's it? That's it. Okay. And so we can also ask, who else could be the Antichrist? That's a fun question. Let's do it. I love it. So in the letters of John, he writes about this sect of his kind of Christian community that has broken off because they, I think there was an issue with divinity. Mm-hmm. They're Gnostic. He says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. And so that's the word. That's where we get the word. That's it? That's it. And he's talking about people. Uh, the people that disagree with him. <laughs> so this is the equivalent of leaving a negative comment on their blog. Well, he, I mean, yeah, I guess so. He's commenting. He's, he's calling them out. He's going like, you're the Antichrist. You are the reason. And so this definitely- You're the antithesis of Christ. Right. Because if you don't follow him and believe in his divine words and works, you are the opposite of him. That's that's just good semantic arguing. He would win a court case. So this is when you start seeing a very obvious external representation of the Antichrist. And that idea of this external representation, this outward force- Mm -hmm. And you being able to blame anyone you don't like as being the Antichrist. Well, thank God we've gotten over that. Can you even imagine? (laughs) That just becomes... Ubiquitous. Yes. And so, of course, you know, a few hundred years later, you start to have these newfangled Muslims. What? No way. So at first they think they're just another invading barbarian force, Uh just like those Germans and... (laughs) Just same shit, different day, whatever. But then, once they actually started to learn about them, they went, oh shit. Because they figured that this must be the last and worst of all heresies. (laughs) Oh, good. I mean, there's no way this could be a new religion. Nah. Crazy talk. Nah. And that, of course, since this was the worst and last of all heresies, Muhammad must be the final enemy. Oh, well, obviously, because... And so in Cordoba in the 850s, over 50 Christians were put to death after purposefully insulting their religion to 
their conquerors. So they went out and they were like, you guys are cotton-headed ninny muggins. So according to one monk, a Christian named Perfectus. Oh, okay. If that was his real name, I don't like him. Oh, there's no way it was his real name. Denounced Muhammad as one of the false Christ. Mm. And that went over well. Yeah, they killed him. Yeah. This was praised by the monk Eulogius, who said they marched out against the angel of Satan and forerunner of Antichrist, that is, Muhammad, the heresarch. Oh, so they thought he was the false prophet? Oh, yeah. And So, no wonder we're getting along well now. <laughs> yeah, just started right at the beginning. And mm-hmm. so, monk Paulus Alvarez called Muhammad all the names. Called what do you mean? He called him Horn, he called him Oh, like beast. all the biblical names? Oh, I'm sure he called him more than just okay. that. Called him Behemoth. He called him Leviathan. So he, he was, was not like, mincing words. No, no, not at yeah. all. And he talked about how they had conquered the Greeks and the Franks and the Goths, and that that's the uprooting of the three horns by the eleventh horn, and this must be a sign, and that these martyrs quote They're, martyrs okay. mm-hmm. suicide by mouth. You know, we're getting into the Middle Ages, and Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, is kind of the center of power and literacy and culture. So Rome is no longer the beast or the restraining force that we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. which is the thing that kind of holds back the coming of the end times. Now it was the Eastern Roman Empire, and they were the saviors. The Romans were the saviors? Yeah, the Eastern Roman Empire. Well, that was quick. Yeah, because now they're all Christians, remember? They're retconning. They are retconning this shit already. Oh, so they retcon some more, and they create this legend of the last world emperor, which is not in the Bible, Mm. and it's this symbolic representation of Christ that will defeat all of Rome, and now God's enemies, and hand over world dominion to God, and it will prepare the world for the final son of perdition to be revealed. So this is like the readying for the Antichrist, yes? Yes. And of course, all the popes, some of the popes, that other pope. That was not the pope that claimed to be the pope, but might have been the pope if you were his buddy. Like the pope in Avignon, but then of course, the French thought it was the pope in Rome. Yeah. And they're all the Antichrist. So yeah, many popes have been called the Antichrist. Like basically every pope has been called the Antichrist, at least by 10 people. Oh, for sure. And, of course, any king that opposed the Pope. Also the Antichrist. Also, definitely. Popes used this idea to justify the Crusades. Pope Innocent III called Muhammad the son of perdition and that he would have a 666-year reign, which was quickly coming to an end. Hmm. And then so you'd also have more fake prophecy. Oh, again? Will you do the history as prophecy thing again? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. See, so the prophecy of the sons of Agap. This was supposedly derived from Arabic prophecy. Oh. Mm. But it was actually a production of the Cardinal Legate Pelagius, who was praised as the thin man, responsible for major defeats of Muslims and victory of Christianity. Slender man? I know, right? Yeah. And the conquest of Mecca and the coming of the Antichrist. Mm. And so this was tied with the Fifth Crusades in 1217 CE. But the Fifth Crusades ended in utter defeat. <laughs> and so this false prophecy did not exactly go as prophesied. Yeah, about that, guys. 
maybe it's not supposed to be right now. Maybe it'll just happen in a few hundred years. It's going to work. It's all going to work out. Don't stress about it. Just be prepared. Don't get too comfortable. And so that idea of the Pope as the Antichrist or even the papal office as the Antichrist Mm. really was a huge component of the Reformation. Oh, the Reformation. So Luther wrote a few times about this Uh saying, now the Romanists make the Pope a vicar of the glorified Christ in heaven. And some of them have allowed the devil to rule them so completely that they have maintained that the Pope is above the angels in heaven and has them at his command. These are certainly the proper works of the real antichrist. We discussed in our last episode how in the Flemish tradition, angels were depicted with vestments that would have put them below earthly clergy. So he's not that off base in saying that they put themselves above angels. When you think of the time, there was so much corruption in the church. Oh my God, no, there really was. It was terrible. Like, that's not a joke and that's not a comment on anything that's going on now. Like, historically, that's just true. And you were talking about how you really didn't read Revelations growing up Protestant. So originally, Luther did not include Revelations in his Bible. And he later added it on, feeling that it was a great forewarning of the papal Antichrist. Oh, so Pope is an Antichrist is a thing. That's a, like, people latch onto that for years and years, huh? Oh, yes, for sure. Okay. Because there is some belief. I think the Catholic Church would say, like, He's a direct conduit to God, like he's God's representative on earth. And other people look at it from different viewpoints in their religion where they don't ascribe any divinity or divine authority to clergy and say that's not right. He is putting himself into high a station. Right. And at the time, you know, back then, the church was so politically powerful. Absolutely. And... So nowadays, it seems, if you were even to believe in all the stuff we've talked about, it seems like silly to think that the Pope would lead this new world conquering kingdom because it's so not what it was 500 years ago. I think that's complete and total bullshit. I call bullshit. I think if I were going to send anyone to take over the world, it would be in the safest, most obscure, like, I, I, I think, like, just from a writing standpoint, like, if I was writing this as a screenplay, that is what I would do, absolutely. But how would he pull all of the countries together? Money. They don't have it. No, but... I mean, Europe's completely irreligious now. Right, but look at American politics. If you were ever to get the right, oh my God, an American Pope could be the Antichrist so fast. Are you kidding me? He would have to get one guy that had all the oil. He would have, there would have to be a political force. There would have to be like the political, you could just reverse it. Like instead of the false prophet. Well, he would, could he maybe could be the false prophet. Like if you were to take the two Antichrist kind of idea. Right. But that would work. Yeah. But you could very much put the Pope in the, like just theoretically writing like we're at writer's workshop right now. We're writing a movie that will never happen. What? Hopefully. Yeah. But I would say that you could so easily have a consolidated government and you could have the Pope come from America and have ties to oil and come from a wealthy family and have political backing and get the religious right on board and 
How did he get the religious right oh, on board? Oh, because you see in my screenplay, he <laughs> would have, really? Like, he would have, like, he would be all about talking to Protestant leaders and trying to dissolve the borders between churches and create one church. He would embrace evangelicalism. He would embrace evangelical thinking. He would elevate the principles enshrined in the Constitution. He would make America great again. He would all those things. And I can totally see how the office could still be a powerful force in letting the events on our idea board here that we have where all of these things are blocked out on little post-it notes as minute markers for our screenplay. I'm not putting my name on this. <laughs> you would. It would be like, really? You don't think I could finagle this? If we get the chance to make a movie, it's not this. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But so before we get to modern craziness. Okay. Well, we did for a minute. Sorry. 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 After the Protestant Reformation, the idea of the Antichrist really does become very fringy. Okay, because the Protestants are like, clearly it's the Pope, or it's nobody, whatever. Well, that's it. It's like they were used it so much. It's like, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. It's like overused. So it lost the sting. Yeah. And like you didn't get everybody agreeing, because if there were 10 different people saying 10 different people were the Antichrist, and they each had their little group of followers, you didn't have the mass amounts of people who were like, Nero, it's Nero, I know math, it's Nero. And so... You have a few more figures that fringy groups kind of point out. So Russia was one kind of holdout on the Antichrist idea. So you had the Russian Orthodox Church. Big deal. That saw itself as the true guarantor of true Christianity because Rome fell. Mm, mm, mm. And the second Rome fell. Mm. Uh, They keep doing that. And so they felt they were the last representation of the fourth beast are the restraining force that was keeping the Antichrist from coming. And they wanted to keep the Antichrist from coming, right? Right. So with reforms under Alexis I, this big debate happened. Are they overturning true Christian worship? Are they destroying the restraining force? So this is like the general Russian populace saying, oh, I don't know about that thing you did there. I don't know how much of the serfs were discussing this. Eh, well, in Mother Russia, is no time for theology. Only potatoes squeezing vodka-like tears from them. So this all came to a head with your fave. Peter the Great. Is it Peter the Great? Yes. I love Peter the Great. As I thought he might be the first beast of the apocalypse. Uh, why would they say that about my Peter? So they thought the seven heads were these czars mm. from Ivan the Terrible mm-hmm. through Peter the Second. Then they're... Yeah, that, they can count. And another another time that we have a little bit of Antichrist pointing is during the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, <laughs> that's going to happen. Things are getting majorly upset. And this is not the first revolution. You know, there have been more. And it seems like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, I tell you. Well, and you have that idea of the triple Antichrist, the papacy, this Muslim imposter. And the collective threat of anarchism and atheism out of the French Revolution. Okay, they are just like, this is off-the-cuff literary criticism. This sounds like something a sophomore wrote the night before when he was coming down off shrooms. Right, so it is fringy. It's fringy. But then, like, some people started kind of paying attention, just a few people, whenever Napoleon came about. Okay, Napoleon, yeah, he's he's, he's consolidated force. Oh, and he's the little horn. He's totes the little horn. 
Aww. It all fits. Zuzar Alexander of Russia called him the Antichrist and the enemy of God. He called him other stuff, too. I'm sure he did. So like we said, the idea of the Antichrist really waned throughout this time. They were using it for everything. You also start getting Enlightenment ideas. Uh-huh. So, like, critique of the legendary elements of Christianity. There's more focus on on being just and pious and the rewards you would get for that than on the whole hell and suffering thing. Right. Puritans had that cornered. The market was cornered and they exported it. Hell yeah. Bestiality. What? What? I saw a pig that looked like you the other day. (laughs) So in other religions, there are ideas, the Antichrist, such as in Islam. Okay. So there's the idea of the Dajjal. Okay. And this is not in the Quran, but it is in the Hadith. Okay. Which we talked about in the last episode. It is kind of a collection of stories and writings kind of about the Quran and about Muhammad's life. And so in this, there is a guy named Ibn Sayyad, a Jewish youth in Medina in Muhammad's time who died in 683 CE. So he was possibly a Jewish ecstatic mystic. Ooh, I would have been his friend. Who Muhammad suspected of being the Dajjal. Definitely would have been his friend. And in the Hadith, one of his companions even offers to kill this crazy Muslim mystic Jew. And One of Muhammad's companions? Yes. Correct? Okay. And he says, there'd be no point. You can't kill him. Oh, well, that adds to his mystery, but I see what he's saying. Like, don't make a martyr of him. No, he's saying you can't kill him. Oh, wait, uh, oh, oh. So he kind of gets this idea of like a false prophet from this and part of that final tribulation. But as time goes on, legends grow. And change. And his description becomes that he's one-eyed, sterile, comes from the east, and he's not able to enter Mecca or Medina. Sounds like the pig that was born in America that got that man put to death. (laughs) Maybe he was the Dajjal. He was. There's many stories, one being that one early Christian converted to Islam and met the Dajjal, chained in a monastery on an island, and the monster predicted that he would soon be loosened on the earth. It sounds unpleasant. So he's like man in the iron mask down there. And so, of course, Jesus will descend from heaven and slay him. People forget Jesus is part of Islam sometimes. Although I think we scared away most of our right-wing followers by now. One account says... When Ad-Dajjal sees Jesus and recognizes his voice, he will melt away like lead in a fire. Then Jesus will leap at him with a spear and stab him between the breast and kill him. That is so rock and roll. Badass (laughs) Jesus. rock and roll. Badass. I love it. Now, he's not a huge, important figure in Islam. But he's rock and roll, dude. Jesus is rock and roll. (laughs) No, no, our Jesus is folk. Jesus was a Capricorn. He ate organic food. But you're right. So he's not important as a figure because Jesus is as important as a figure. Right. So it's like. They marry each other again. They marry each other right. throughout all of this. It's like a, it's a really cool B plot. So as we move into contemporary times. We've put these silly ideas behind us. We look back and say, oh, this is just the mythology of the past. And surely we've moved on and become more enlightened and. You know, the ubiquitousness of literacy and the information age has just dispelled all the silliness and weren't we funny? Yeah, well, you know, like Catholics kind of say that in a way. They say it's just, you know, these historical accounts and they caution against its use as doctrine. 
see more of like a symbolic thing. Right. This expresses tension and this expresses like the fact that you do have to kind of be very faithful. You do have to you do have to sort of fight for your faith at all sides at all times and fight to preserve your relationship with the church and with God and things. Right. But that idea is still around on the fringes, even especially speaking of Catholicism. It's definitely seen in the Catholic fringes. <laughs> and fringy so, Catholics are my favorite Catholics. I have fringy Catholic bells. <laughs> or is that like on a fringe jacket that you swish? <laughs> well, I sing Kumbaya. Yes. So there was a New York Times article on November 12, 1982, talking about this Mexican sect that was based on these visions and was led by a radical priest located at new jerusalem which is about 180 miles outside mexico city Uh, okay and a peasant girl mama maria speaking in the voice of the archangel gabriel mama maria states that the pope is a fraud oh i'm sorry not mama maria the angel gabriel yes 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 pope paul the sixth is imprisoned in the basement of the vatican so that the Antichrist can enter. The Antichrist is already here. Goes on to describe him. And he's this young guy from Guadalajara. Met a man from Guadalajara. Is that what happened? Did the angel Gabriel break into spontaneous dance, like from the birdcage? And like... In my movie version, it yes. <laughs> Okay. So this is the beast that's chained that speaks to that person who says that he'll be free soon, obviously. In the Muslim tradition. Wait, sure. No, wait, 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 what? He's Nero. Uh, mixing up. All, He's all the popes. All the popes. So, But this pope is good. The one that's chained up now is good. Yeah, but there's like a fake pope acting like him. Oh, this is at the time that Pope Paul VI was the pope? Yeah. So this is not somebody that they pretended had died. We're not even that logical. This is, there's two. This is face-off. This is face-off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage? Yes. And Nicolas Cage is now the freaking Pope. The Antichrist lives in Guadalajara, Mexico. Yeah. Okay, wait. Before we go any further, I want you all to go to your pantry or pull out your kitchen drawer or whatever clever little hiding spot you have found to keep your tinfoil. And I want you to go and form it into a pyramid, the whole roll, and tie it to the top of your head. Illuminati. No, no. Pyramid. Pyramid's just a good... Masons. Form it into a mortar board on top of your head. There. There we go. Big flat surface. That's going to keep the bad... Flat earth. <sighs> Form it into... Okay, you know what? Just just get some tinfoil and wrap your head in it. And continue with caution because we are going hardcore, fringe, deep internet juiciness. I'm talking page seven of Google results. No one goes past page two. Everyone knows that. I do. I do. Just for you because I love you. That was in the 80s, and there was some crazy shit happening in the 80s, right? There was much fear-mongering and gnashing of teeth, and no one had anything better to do, and she didn't have her MTV. So now, surely, surely, with all the cute cats on the internet, we've moved on, right? Hell no. Hell no. We won't go. So I came across a little organization known as the Most Holy Family Monastery. Sounds wholesome. It is. And this is the about section from their website. The Catholic Church is is the one true church founded by Jesus Christ upon St. Peter. This is proven by history, scripture, and tradition, but... Which, FYI, that's like 
the foundation of the Catholic Church. But the post-Vatican II church, in scare quotes, is actually a counterfeit Catholic, scare quotes, sect with new teachings, new practices, and a new mass, which all contradict the Catholic faith of all times. So this is an organization out of Fillmore, New York, and good news, they have a AOL email address, which you can use to contact them. Who has an AOL email address? The Most Holy Family Monastery does, because they're legit as fuck. They got the disc in the mail, and they were like, it's a sign from God. It is! It is! It's circular, and circles are perfect. So, they argue that the Catholic Church is a corrupt version of the Bride of Christ, or the Whore of Babylon, which is one of their favorite things to throw around. This is just a sample of like the way that they're equating this to end times. So they quote from Apocalypse 17.4. And the woman was clothed round about with purple and scarlet and gilt with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abomination and filthiness of her fornication. Gross. Right? <laughs> What's and in the cup? <laughs> filthiness and abomination. They predicted two, two girls, girls one, one cup. cup my god you're right and then they go on to interpret this for us so we don't have to this is perhaps one of the most revealing verses in the apocalypse in the catholic church bishops wear purple and cardinals wear red scarlet notice that they are clothed round about their waist with these colors so that you see, this is legit. But I watched a video on their theories about the Antichrist, which was like 30 minutes long. And I'll never get that time back, so you're going to listen. <laughs> Hooray. Hooray. So, using that verse from Second Thessalonians that we talked about earlier, about the man sitting above and opposing all religion, where all those ideas were collapsed, they use a video documentation of the actual Antichrist, who has already come. Who? Don't you wish I would tell you? Don't you want to know? Tell me, tell me, tell me. JP2! JP2? Pope John Paul II? Yeah, my homeboy. So he is the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. He represents complete and total apostasy. Full-scale religious apostasy. And they show this by reviewing footage from the Assisi prayer meeting of 1986 which they refer to as the most notorious act of the counterfeit church. 150 different faiths were invited to pray together. Terrible. Terrible. And John Paul II sat there and watched it all happen and took part in the services. And didn't go like Pulp Fiction and kill them all? No, it was not a trap. They were very disappointed it was not actually a trap. So they understand that other gods are not gods but devils. And he even included Jews and Muslims who both reject the Trinity. He endorsed idolatry and false worship. And he made a public profession of faith in false gods. So we see him reclining or opposing the general direction in which the other faithful offer their prayers to their various deities. So he's putting himself opposing all religion also, he's on a raised platform, and the people descend to a stage. Therefore, he is putting himself above all religion. Oh my god, it must be true. It must be true. <gasps> and and he was wounded. Right, he was shot, and then he had his image worshipped and venerated after his death when he was canonized. And so, 
clearly he is the Antichrist. Oh, and for the bonus round, he is the like right number of popes after Vatican II to be the seven, whatever. They see major significance in all of this. So that's fun. So, you know, we're talking about these fringy Catholic ideas of the Antichrist. And you may say, wait a second. You're talking about this like no one's talking about the Antichrist. And we hope we weren't misleading you because as your Facebook feed tells you from that friends you had in high school. And their moms. And their moms and your aunt that you can't unfriend. People still believe in the Antichrist. And it's actually got a lot of traction over this past century. And a lot of that has to do with Christian fundamentalism. A lot of that has to do with Kirk Cameron. Or the Left Behind series of books. By Tim LaHaye. And Jerry Jenkins. FYI, Tim LaHaye is one of the founders of the Moral Majority. Which is a thing. Which is a thing. Which is a thing. It lobbies. It's him and Jerry Falwell. They are very politically active. But fundamentalist has some really important ideas that are very different than a lot of the ideas we've talked about. One of those is called postponement theory. And that's that all of the prophecies left unfulfilled in the Bible when the Jews rejected Jesus and lost Jerusalem and its temple were paused. Uh Uh-huh. Pause button. They paused and what? Did not read it. Okay. And then what happened? When the Jews returned to Palestine. Okay, so post-World War II. Is whenever the clock will start ticking again. Ooh, that's clever. I like it. And another idea that's really important is premillennialism. Right. And so that's that they are waiting for the coming of Christ's kingdom of a millennia that's described in Revelations, also known as Apocalypse, the same book, Apocalypse of John, Revelation, that they are waiting for the coming of God's kingdom for mm-hmm. a thousand years. Okay, so in 1940s, the clock started ticking and we have a thousand years? No. Uh, oh. No, the clock starts ticking and the prophecies start to come true. All of that leading up to the coming of oh, the Antichrist. I see, I see. To the... Seven years of trials and tribulations Uh of the people left behind. Okay, yeah, I'm familiar. Uh, Yeah, and then the coming of Jesus, slay the Antichrist, and yeah, new millennia, kingdom of heaven, whatever. So you may say, I know this. This is ubiquitous. I've never been evangelical. I don't want to be an evangelical. I'm not even Unitarian. My mom was Lutheran once, but I still know about it. It's completely ubiquitous in our American culture. It's something that the religious right uses often to fearmonger. I've heard that Obama's the Antichrist. So how do we go from the leadership of the Catholic Church, who still very much has stake in it, to people who want to have a problem with the leadership of the Catholic Church, and people who are embroiled in conflict in Europe, to this being such a thing? Man, it's a thing here. How does this become an American idea? World War One and Two. Yay! No, that really was the end of the world, just so we all know. But I want you to look at this outline here that I have, Jacob, and I want you to tell me what this line here says. I want a new deal, one that won't make me sick. And I just had to share that with you because I thought it was incredibly clever. So now that we have that out of the way, we can begin looking at FDR as the harbinger of all things evil and nasty who ruined 
everything for everyone always. Wait, FDR was was the Antichrist? Yeah, for a minute. Oh, okay. We're over it now. We're over it. We, he can be on the dime. It's okay. Let's begin at the beginning. Way, way back in 1936, when the campaign was in full sway and they wanted to be prepared, an operative's August report contained some important conclusions, which FDR's secretary insisted that the president read personally. I have said for some time, the operative explained in a memorandum, that, in my opinion, the strongest opposition to Mr. Roosevelt in 1936 would come not from economic reactionaries, but from the religious reactionaries, if you can separate the two. The opposition of what one can call the evangelical churches is growing steadily, more bitter and more open. So this is the start of this kind of moral majority, right-wing, political action church. It absolutely is. This is is the time that evangelical Christianity becomes a political entity and puts itself on the political landscape. And this is, I'm going to be quoting heavily from a paper by Matthew Sutton about FDR being the Antichrist. And I'll have that up on the site for you to read. Let us introduce the conflict at hand. Roosevelt's efforts to expand the power of the federal government and its international inclinations seemed to parallel fundamentalist end times fears about the rise of totalitarian states and the world rule by Satan-inspired dictators. They interpreted the Roosevelt presidency in the context of Adolf Hitler's persecution of the Jews and Christians, Benito Mussolini's restoration of the Roman Empire, and Joseph Stalin's institutionalization of state atheism. The depression which led them to the inescapable conclusion that the countdown to Armageddon had seemingly begun. So you can look at some of the things people used to worry about, and you can see that reflected in this. You know, you've got Hitler, they didn't know at this time, <laughs> killing all the Jews, but it was you know, a lot of people were fleeing, a lot of the Jews were fleeing from Germany. Then you also have the Great Depression and a huge war. And you famine, dust bowl, famine, and you have Russia building up its forces as this atheistic power, barbarians, and then Mussolini recreating the Roman Empire. Nothing but trouble that il duce. They did not interpret Roosevelt's presidency simply as one of its own terms, but they treated it as part of a larger puzzle that included pieces from the Middle East and Asia. And when assembled, they completed a picture that revealed God's plan for the final age. And you've got Roosevelt there, along with everything else, who's just playing into the devil's hands by undermining the supposed Christian and constitutional foundations of the United States. Cyborg. So, I'm about to blow your minds. This movement did not start in the southern United States. No, no, no. It started mostly in northern and western urban areas where there was more at stake, where the lines needed to be drawn more neatly, where those who were faithful needed to distinguish themselves from those who just simply went to church. After that, it moved down and helped create the Bible Belt with Billy Graham taking the lead. Oh, Billy Graham has been in charge forever. And overwhelmingly, the people who were really into this movement were white and middle class. And you see a really interesting phenomena happening here. You have things like the Church of the Nazarene, which grew from 100 congregations in 1906 to 2,200 in 1936. 
And then the Salvation Army expanded from 662 churches to 1,088. Don't give to those Santas. No, no. Oh, no. There are better charities to give to. But between 1926 and 1936, the number of overall churches dropped by 14.2%, which is significant because you have a decline in the traditional religious fervor, but then you have a vastly expanding, quickly expanding growth within the evangelical movement. And this happened for several reasons. And part of that was the rise of the university system. Liberals. Mm-hmm. The popularity of Darwinian evolution. Scopes trial. Mm-hmm. Urbanization. Welfare queens. Oh, they were called dole loafers at that point. There was a word. There was actually a word. I believe it. Catholic and Jewish immigrants. Oh, those terrible Catholics. Mongrels. Mongrels. All terrible. The application of literary criticism to the Bible, which allowed for freer interpretation of things like Revelation. But as we know, they were really, really focused on a very literal interpretation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the systematic study of world religions. This is where JP2 goes wrong. Right. So according to the rubric laid out by premillennialism, there was a certain course of events that had to happen. Beginning with the restoration of the Jews to Palestine, the emergence of powerful empires in Rome, Russia, and the Far East, then a war, big war, and then a new leader will appear, and he will promise peace and security. And most people, sheeple, sheeple, bah, bah, will not recognize that he is the Antichrist. Most political and religious leaders from around the world will cede their sovereignty and independence to him through an international agency. Just before he reveals himself, though, the true Christians, the real Christians, the people who know what's going on, will be raptured. Well, that was easy. That was easy. And then the other people will be left on earth for seven bad years, trials, tribulation, etc. Then Jesus and his homeboys and girls will come back to earth and kick ass. And Christ will defeat the Antichrist and establish the millennial kingdom of peace and prosperity on earth. And if this is the millennial kingdom, I want my money back. Yay, fantastic. So why did this have such a strong hold on people? Well, World War I was scary as fuck. And everyone died. And there True. was trench warfare yeah. and horrible new weapons that no one had ever seen. And death on a gigantic scale. And then you have like this post-war risk board scramble where everybody's just like swapping places around and renaming and shuffling. And the balances of power were very upset. They were miffed and positively sad. But people began to get very concerned. And then Britain did a thing. The Balfour Declaration. Yeah. So that was in 1917 when Balfour said, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Right, and this happens after they take Jerusalem back from the Ottoman Empire. Damn Ottomans. Right. But that all of this, like that especially, that kind of brings it into reality. Mm-hmm. And they're going like, see, we said. We've been saying and saying and saying for so long. And meanwhile, somebody that can read is sitting there going, oh my God, guys, come on, even a broken clock is right twice a day. But then there was much famine, dust bowl stuff, a great influenza. Plague. 
Mm -hmm. the Bolshevik Revolution, and that kind of established that idea of this northern kingdom. Right, so in the Bible, supposedly, the kingdoms of Gog and Magog would come together and try to conquer Israel. And so they thought that Russia and Germany, whenever they, especially when they formed the non-aggression pact, mm, were creating, yeah, well, they were creating Gog and Magog. Mm, Magog. Oh, Magog. <laughs> and then, perhaps most threatening of all, was the League of Nations. No. Yes. Possible mm. world peace. Oh, no. That's terrible. It seemed like there was factual corroboration to their feeling that the end was nigh. But then there were more interwar developments. Let's take this one at a time. Let's look at let's look at El Duce. Let's take a good, hard, long look. El Duce doesn't sound nice. He wasn't. It's was Mussolini. So since Mussolini is resurrecting Rome, where with the revivalist Paul Rader, the eyes of all students of prophecy are upon him. One thing is certain, says Arno C. Gablian, who has a fantastic name. The Roman Empire is arising out of the dust of the centuries. What a testimony to prophetic word. Ah, yes. Mm. And then Nelson Bell, who is Billy Graham's father-in-law, agreed, stating that Mussolini was paving the way for the final restoration of the old Roman Empire and ultimately the Antichrist. What a joy. What a joy. The Antichrist is coming. To have the hope of his coming before us rather than the mirage of the world getting better and better. What? <laughs> that makes no sense. Right? I have no idea on that one. So Edith and Ralph Norton went to Europe to check things out because they were mighty curious. They're a pair of evangelists. And they decided they'd have a meeting with Mussolini in which they said, Do you intend to reconstitute the Roman Empire? And then they explained the biblical prophecy about the re restoration of Rome. And he's like, uh, yeah, that sounds good. What is this in the Bible? He wants to know. And they explain, and in a great irony, he leaves, like, kind of being like, maybe I am the Antichrist. You're That'd right. be great, guys. And then in Italy invaded Ethiopia in 1935 and this lined up with biblical prophecy and ladies clutched their pearls in sunday school across the united states of america gary barnhouse said the fact that the detailed prophecies of events lying thousands of years in the future are to be found in the bible is a demonstration magnificent in its sweep of the truth and infallibility of the word of god so we get to the jews in palestine and this is a real, real, real big deal. Right. This is what starts the clock ticking. Hitler's anti-Semitism was part of God's plan. I guess he's dark in the light. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Hitler. Thanks for that. It would drive the Jews back to Palestine, they believed. So fundamentalists were actually among some of the first Americans to point out that the Jews were being persecuted. That's interesting. Yeah, I thought so. After completing a 1933 tour of Germany... The Boston minister, Harold Okenga, called the Nazi leader an instrument in the hand of God for driving of the Jews back to Palestine. Oh, so Hitler was doing God's work. That's Yay. fantastic. That's fantastic. We should, we should maybe, we should help, right? I mean, he's doing God's work, so it's the godly thing to do to help Hitler. Be anti-Semitic? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Mm. The Jews were... 
the arch troublers of the world in one man's words. Of course. So Gabelian joined Americans such as Henry Ford, among others, mm. in passing off the um, Protocols of Zion. Oh, Protocols, the Protocols of, of Zion. Uh, so before I'll say it again, I'm doing an episode on it. I Protocols wait. of Zion. He, he helped pass them off as authentic. Fantastic. Yeah. So more escalation, more things to worry about. Oh, it just keeps getting worse and worse, guys. So prohibition is repealed. That's, that's Thank a, God. Oh, I mean, no. That's terrible. And then people were freely expressing frustration about working conditions. <sighs> <sighs> and there was a growth of communism and there was a supposed cultural decline. I mean, kids these days. And we talked about that in the uh, Lavender Scare episode. Mm-hmm. And then enter that rapscallion, FDR. Oh, that cyborg, wheelchair, polio-infested bastard. His wife is a lesbian. She probably was. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably uh, true. His wife is a lesbian. She never wears any makeup. And so his charismatic personality, combined with his utopian promises, convinced many fundamentalists and other conservatives that he might be laying the foundations for a revolution. Furthermore, his consolidation of power, his controversial policies, and his internationalist sensibilities seem to parallel biblical descriptions of political conditions in the last days. And then, of course, there's the New Deal. And that is the way, that is the slippery slope to communism, my friends. That is how we all become part of the Antichrist world government. Something to note is that, like, despite the fact that there were vastly different presidents, both Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson were deemed okay by fundamentals. They were praised as godly men. Things didn't go great for FDR because, like, as far as proving he wasn't the Antichrist or some harbinger of Satan, because... In the DNC in 1932, guess how many votes he got? 616. No. It could be. It could be. Some papers say it. No, 666. Yeah, that's the one. I just thought this was great because I swear to God, you could change out a couple of words here and it would be something that was printed on Facebook three days ago. Although these same fundamentalists would soon fight Roosevelt's expansion of the federal government into the economy, they were sure that Washington had an important role to play in restricting citizens' moral choices. You can't have it both ways, guys. They do, though. That's the thing. Is this? We'll get there. We'll get there. So prohibition was repealed. Pearls were clutched. Bauman, one of evangelists of the time, wrote, The election here in the United States seemed to have gone chiefly in a way that delights the devil's crowd. But these are the last days, and what else are we to expect? And so just a few months after Roosevelt took office, he was being compared to Hitler, and people were claiming that his actions were going to lead to the big dictator, the Superman, the lawless one, at the head of ten kingdoms of the prophetic earth. And so the most important thing in the conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical, Christian Agenda began to be staving off the end of the world by not allowing America to fall under the influences of communism. Oh, of course. Because as long as we aren't communists, then the whole world can't be communist. And if the whole world's not communist, (laughs) it won't happen. Because we won't have fulfilled the prophecy, and it can't happen until we allow the prophecy to be fulfilled. It's a warning, y'all. Yeah, but they thought FDR and the New Deal was just... 
early stages of communism, and he was just preparing America for the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Work of the devil. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, and women got all uppity. What do you mean? Well, Frances Perkins was appointed the first female cabinet member, Department of Labor. No. Women were continuing to, you know, demand to be treated like people. And that's just, you know, whore Babylon thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but that was very upsetting. Roosevelt, like, didn't have that strict isolationist mentality that they wanted him to have. After World War I, people were scared shitless. They wanted nothing to do with any more world. They wanted to just be America and be great again. Isolationism. Yes, so important, so important. But Roosevelt was like, I mean, like, we're involved, guys. They can get over here. And they did. Who did? They. The ubiquitous they on December 7th, 1941, actually, they got over here. And so that kind of ended isolationism. That really dissolved that idea that we could just just be the holdout. We could be the thing that kept the world from ending. The restraining force. Right. And then we start getting this really interesting thing of people explicitly saying, like, God wants you to vote against FDR. Oh, we don't hear that anymore at all. It's just so interesting. If there was ever a time when the Christians of the United States needed to function as citizens, it's now. Subversive influences are at work that would destroy the constitutional government. The Lord was calling Americans to awake and repudiate at the polls. And then another one says, red-blooded 100% Americanism is the call of God. If our citizens do not arouse themselves and block the way of the next election... The New Deal will so thoroughly weaken the economic stability and morale of the people that the nation will easily succumb to almost any antagonistic force, even a communistic revolution. And then 1936 election comes and FDR wins. They're like, well, it was good while it lasted. We're all gonna die. One person said the Constitution has been repealed. Oh, I haven't heard that recently. Yeah. Ballman did conclude that the President of the United States is not the Antichrist. I would never say that he was the Antichrist. Mm-mm. But he had to say it. And I think that's very revealing. Yeah, because they've been talking it up forever. And then he, they did warn that America may begin with a benevolent dictator, but dictators do not remain benevolent long. A benevolent dictator, then a tyrannical dictator, and then the Antichrist. But hold on to your pantaloons. It gets worse. I have them. FDR did the unthinkable. He revealed himself as the Antichrist. He ran for a third term. No. Yes. And people were like, oh my God, he's trying to seize power forever. He's declared himself ruler for life, which he kind of did. But, you know, like with the will of the people so he ran for a third term people were really freaked out by it there was like a mantra that was formed at this time which was like we labor as though christ would not come for a millennium but we live as though he were going to come tonight so just constant vigilance i would say that's still present today i heard it growing up like i've heard that and then you get this idea that god has pinned his last hope on america will it be revival or revelation So we can stop it if we just, like, make this a Christian nation and don't don't fall for it. We just have to not fall for it. We have to outsmart him. 
We just have to be smarter than the Antichrist. No problem. Right. They were just trying to rally believers into action in this epic conflict that would end in their ultimate triumph. And it kind of creates this win-win scenario. Right. Where if it starts to happen, if things don't go their way. Well, they just get raptured. They're fine. Well, and they were like, see, I told you. I told you. And if it doesn't happen, they're like, look, we're being good enough for bad things not to happen to us. So which, either way you go, it's right. It creates this really weird circular logic in this very insular community that just acts like an echo chamber and bolsters its own ideas. And that doesn't happen anymore, though, thank God. Obviously, what they needed to do was create a more systematic approach to their kind of like grassroots style activism that they'd been doing. And so they organized what was at the time known as the National Association of Evangelicals for United Action. Damn it. (laughs) And that was formed in 1942. Many warnings, like from Okinga at the first convention, he said, I see on the horizon ominous clouds of battle, which spell annihilation unless we are willing to run in a pack. This is the time, the day for an offensive. All right, so this is when they organize, when they start creating this voting block. Mm-hmm. This voting block of fundamentalists, all to keep the Antichrist out. That is their chief goal. Yes. That is the chief goal of the fundamentalist right-wing voting block. Not everyone even thought, everyone that looked at this didn't say, oh, yes, this is the answer. Like there was a person, uh, a Lutheran minister named John Brenner, who wrote, to introduce an evangelical block into the political and economic affairs of our nation would lead to internal dissensions and finally to the loss of freedom of religion. That sounds like prophecy to me. Uh-huh, me too. So this did not end with FDR. No, 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 no. That was just the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, no. And it gained steam in this weird way. It gained credibility because there were a few... You know, the right politician. The same way the KKK did, really. It was just a social thing. It was just like where you went because you were in church there. And then the senator went. And then the other senator went. And then all the senators had to go. In 1953, they were hanging out with the White Eisenhower and Richard Nixon, signing the Declaration of the Seven Freedoms on the 4th of July. Fantastic. Yep. And then, because this this group gained power... And the 60s and 70s were so bad. I mean, they just were. There was a lot of political progress, but it was a lot of fear, too. Understandably so. Right. I mean, Vietnam was horrible. And we lost faith in our leaders. And Anyway, 60s and 70s were rough on America. And from the ashes rose the phoenix with his jelly beans. Ah, the late, great Ronald Reagan. And he was not just a an ally to the NAE and people like them. He was actually a believer. He was. This is the first time we get somebody like this that is just truly on board. Well, Jimmy Carter is born again Christian, but he was not as extreme about the apocalyptical stuff. All right, he still teaches Sunday school. Yeah, so... Our great leader, Ronald Reagan, was interviewed by Wolf Blitzer, who at the time wrote for the Jerusalem Post, and he said that Reagan told an Israeli lobbyist, you know, I turn back to your ancient prophets in the Old Testament and the signs of foretelling. You're doing Bush, you're doing Bush. Same, same. (laughs) All right, go ahead. I'm going with it. All right, I like it. I'm not the voice guy. (laughs) (laughs) 
and signs foretelling Armageddon, and I find myself wondering if if we're the generation that's going to see that come about. I don't know if you've noted any of those prophecies lately. Believe me, they certainly describe the times we're going through. So this is like just showing that he bought in. He was 100% in all the way. And the Cold War was a hell of a thing. It was real. Yeah, and it was like Reagan, I felt like, really liked it. <laughs> but yeah, but so Reagan was that new messiah squaring off against that big bad government and its communistic antichrist ways. Right, like communism equaled the government of Satan. Yeah, no, literally. Yeah. As citizens of both this world and the next, they maintained that the rise of the Antichrist was imminent and that it was never too late for revival. Every generation since has heeded the message. While most fundamentalists never really believed that Roosevelt was the Antichrist, they felt sure that he'd move the United States an enormous step closer to Armageddon. Boy, did he. So it's crazy that this entire like, kind of fundamentalist right-wing movement is based around the Antichrist and the coming of the end times. This is why we have our current government. Because of the Antichrist. I hate the Antichrist. The idea of the Antichrist. <laughs> but you know, through time you see more and more things labeled as the Antichrist. In 1972, Hal Lindsey publishes a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And that really establishes that like timeline and the like through story mm. of how it's mm. going to come through. It's the best-selling book of the 1970s. In 1981, you get the book When Money Fails, which says that barcodes are the new 666, the mark of the beast, and credit cards and computers and the financial system were all the works of the Antichrist. Okay. Robert Van Campen had a book come out in 1989 called The Sign, where he thought that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. But he's dead. And that he would be resurrected? From his head wound and come back to be worshipped by all. Why has no one got on that shit? Why is no one pretending to be new Hitler? Because, well, he actually doesn't fit any of the prophecies at all. He's like, if you think of the idea of Antichrist, like, oh, it's just the most evil person, that's all he fits. He actually doesn't fit, like, anything else. So, Constance Cumbry, in her book Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow in 1983, identified the New Age movement. Is a spiritual worldview that would usher in the Antichrist religion. Fine. So it was FDR, but that's been a day or two ago. And people just seem to love to write Antichrist on your forehead when you fall asleep first to the slumber party. So who is it today? Guess. <laughs> Obama. Is it Obama? It's always Obama. Well, it could be. So in modern times, some of the ideas floating about is that there's a fundamentalist split whether he'll be Jewish or Gentile. A lot of people think he'll come from the European Union, mm, mm-hmm. a.k.a. the revived Roman Empire. The common market, as they call it in the Yemen. And they will make peace with Israel. He definitely has to be gay. What? Yeah, no, so that's not in there. In Daniel 11.37, it says, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of woman, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. That sounds like Mary does job. That's not gay. I'm just reporting. But of course, Obama, 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 thanks, Obama. So of course you hear, oh, Obama's the Antichrist, that kind of bullshit. But the leaders of these kind of movements 
Actually, say he's probably not the Antichrist. So, in an interview with Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the writers of the Left Behind book, and actually the founder of the Moral Majority, I said that Obama's more of like a warming up act to the Antichrist. Oh, he's the, he's the opener? He's preparing the world. Now, that's booking talent. Yeah, first because Antichrist will only appear after the rapture, and since... We haven't been raptured. I mean, we're not going to be raptured. We're definitely not going to be If I'm raptured, there's a mistake. <laughs> and... Tim Light goes on to say that Obama claims to be a Christian and might be a closet Christian. What? How can you, well, that's what you're supposed to be. The Bible says pray in the closet. It sure does. It sure does. Do you think he means homosexual when he says Christian? I think he's like 90 when he said this. Okay. He also said there must be an overwhelming consensus about the Antichrist's popularity, oh, which is, of course, not exist. He's not ultra popular. Hey, his approval ratings did reach 60% right before he left office. One of the highest. See, it's all true. Jenkins even said, I can see why people might think that. Oh, classy. But Lahey repeatedly returned to the dual claim that prophetic scenarios foretell a stage of socialism in which government commands everything, redistributing wealth from the haves to the have-nots, and that Obama is such a socialist working for such a world. This is obviously someone that's never read the Bible. Doesn't Jesus say, like, forsake all your possessions and follow me? And He does. What you've done to the yeah. least of these you've done unto me. Okay, just making sure. He just does. making sure we're reading the same thing here. So they really are just saying that Obama is more just like playing his role to lead up to the Antichrist. He's colluding with Team Satan. Yeah. He's not actually the Antichrist. He's not that cool. They don't want to give him that credit. No. That's a good thought. I didn't think of that. But as you can see, these ideas, these ideas change and are reinterpreted and are different for every few hundred years. So there have been so many times throughout history where we as a people have said, oh, look there, I see the signs. We've applied it to everything. Everyone. Seriously. Like even that guy you don't like at the party. Oh. Definitely that guy. Yeah. 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 Daniel. The coffee shop guy? Fuck that guy. <laughs> so let's go back to our movie. The Omen. The Omen. And let's look at it through the lens of the apocalypse. All right, now we have background. We've got the information. Hopefully you didn't fall asleep. Let's do it. All right. Our guiding thesis throughout this analysis of the movie and its version of the apocalypse will be a quote from a monk at the St. Benedict Monastery who says, For everything holy... There is something unholy. Remember that. That's key. Got it. We can look at the omen as foretelling the importance of America's role in the apocalypse. Is this your theory? Do you have a theory? Yeah, I mean, this is not something I've read anywhere else. This is me. I believe that the omen can be read as an ongoing battle between the organized Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant sects that maintain a more rigorous application of the Word of God to their faith and their role in rooting out the evil that lies within the Catholic Church. All right, let's hear it. Okay. I'm ready for your theory. It's very important that Protestants exist because without Protestants, we don't get the Reformation, we don't get the King James Bible, and most importantly, we don't get the Puritans. Without the Puritans, we don't get the eradication of the savage beast from the land of America and the institution of said America. Okay. Okay. So, the Roman Catholic Church is partnered with Satan to get more power in a world where they were losing it 
because of Protestants. Okay, Pope is the Antichrist. Priest is in on it. No, the Pope isn't the Antichrist. Damien's the Antichrist. No, but he's, he's in on it. Everybody's in on it. The papal office. Is in on it. That's why the priest presided over his birth. Priest has to already know what's going on. Priest has to be there. Priest delivers him. Priest gives him the thorn. He's born in a Catholic hospital. Sacrifice of the baby. In the Catholic hospital. He was born in a Catholic hospital, held by priest, everything else, and he seemed totally fine, right? He wasn't freaking out. He was peaceful, perfectly happy. But when they tried to take him to the Episcopal wedding, which is definitely stated. It's very clearly stated in the movie. He flips his shit. Tries to claw everyone's eyes out. There's a distinction made in the movie between apostles of Satan and an apostate of hell. The priests in the movie are referred to as apostles of Satan. The priest, Brennan, who dies from the lightning bolt, has the mark of the beast on his inner thigh. He is the only other character besides Damien who is mentioned as having the mark of the beast, as all apostles of Satan do. He is Roman Catholic. However, Miss Baylock, second nanny... Nanny 2.0 is referred to as an apostate of hell. An apostate is someone who rejects their faith. She is very clearly British and would have been brought up in the Anglican tradition. She rejects her faith. The Roman Catholics are blatantly following Satan. Do you see the difference? Yes. Okay. So Robert becomes a stand-in for Martin Luther. And I'll offer more evidence on this later. One key point here is that his wife's name is Catherine. And the wife of Martin Luther was Katharina von Bora. Oh. The dogs throughout the movie, the hellhounds, are an allusion to the wolf that suckled Romulus and Remus, an allusion to Rome, where the Antichrist is supposed to come from. And where Damien came from. Right. And throughout the movie, there are allusions to important twins throughout history. For example, Damien's name. Damien is a saint in the Catholic Church, and the oldest Saint Damien, the original, was a twin to another saint, Saint Cosmas. And they were early Christian doctors who performed miracles, and they were martyred together. You know, their skulls have been discovered many times because they, they tried to, like, shoot them with arrows, and that didn't work, and they tried to crucify them, and that didn't work because they're magic. And so they eventually they just had to behead him. Of course. And so their skulls have been discovered all over the world. And they've been like enshrined and venerated. And like multiple times people have been like, obviously this is the skull of St. Damien and St. Cosmos. And one of the most important revelations in the movie comes when... You find out that his mother was a jackal. Right. The skull of the baby is one of the most important ones. So that right. would be the, the twin, the opposite, the anti-Damien. The Christ Antichrist. Yes. So you have the revelation on that skull. And then where do they find the 666 on Damien? Where their real child was killed. This head bashed in. Right. In the same spot on the skull. So you have that twin skull idea with the name Damien. Then we move on to St. Benedict. Because St. Benedict's Abbey is the seat of the monastery, and it's actually built over the remains of the home of St. Benedict, where he and his sister, St. Scholastica, grew up. Now, they're important because 
Saint Scholastica was dying and he was visiting her and he had a rule that he had to go back to the monastery at a certain time because he did not go out of the monastery at night. He had to go back to his cell and pray. And she knew she was dying and she didn't want him to go. And so she folded her hands and closed her eyes and a great storm came. Like the great storm that comes and kills Father Brennan. Yes. And when she does this... He looks at her and says, what have you done? And she said, you would not listen. So I talked to God and he listened. Will you stay with me? And that happens just after a meeting. They've had to discuss important scripture. And it happens in the movie right after Robert and Brennan meet to discuss Damien's fate. And then he mentions being the ambassador to the court of St. James, which is named for St. James the Lesser or James the brother of Jesus. So you have that brother idea reinforced there, James and Jesus, and lots of dualities. Because duality is a really important element of just the Antichrist legend in general. Mm -hmm. And then we have that same illusion. I'm the ambassador to the court of St. James. James is also the name of the king who translated or had the King James Bible written, which is now the standard text, which gets rid of the dirty Catholic parts and is used in Protestant churches all over the world. And they mentioned that there are 47 crosses hanging in the priest room when they go to his crazy room where he has Bible stuff painted all over. And 47 people translated the Bible from Latin into English for... Really? Yes. So it's key that it's in English so that we can have Protestants and Puritans and they can go to America. And there's more. Really? There's more? There's more. So Miss Baylock is an allusion to Bael or Bael, who is... Prince of demons. Right. And Locke is a Anglo-Saxon suffix that means with the nature of or being like. And so she's Bael Locke. She's Baylock. And then Bogenhagen is Martin Luther's teacher. And Bugenhagen is the archaeologist that tells him that he has to kill Damien. And how to do it. He gives him instruction and tells him how important his mission is. And Robert's name is actually an allusion to a saint, St. Robert Bellarmine. And he was instrumental in the consideration of the tensions between the Protestants and the Catholics. And he was one of the more tolerant Catholic scholars, and he actually weighed all the evidence. He was also part of Galileo's trial, And he said, if you can give me proof, I'll believe it. And I'll reinterpret scripture accordingly. He's like, I don't believe that it shows that the word is fallible. I believe it shows that we didn't understand it correctly. Men are fallible. And so you have this setup of him like being a very proof driven, authority driven person and he requiring proof before he can take action. And we definitely see that mirrored with Robert in the film. And so he has that kind of need to have hard evidence. He's a very analytical person. And then his last name is Thorne. Why do you have so many papers? I have a lot of papers. I think I was thinking a lot about this and I, I, I had some ideas. There's like different handwriting on these papers. It's just, it had some ideas. Okay. Okay. I had some ideas. And then we get to Thorne. Okay, so his last name is Thorns, and Thorns are actually mentioned throughout the Bible. For example, in Galatians, for the land that is drunk of the rain and that falls often on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So 
that's one place. And then it says, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree of which I've commanded you not to saying you shall eat not of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat herb of the field and so sweat in your saying, face. You're saying that he's what? Thorns. Thorns represent a curse. He's cursed. Right. And so Jesus came back and f- man is cursed. Man in general is cursed. And thorns are a symbol of that curse. And so when thorns are made into a crown and put on the head of Christ, and he's crowned with a curse, and then he defeats it, he uncurses the curse but then Damien means to tame the name Damien means to tame and so he's taming the curse or taming Jesus's reign and he's ending Jesus's reign by coming back and so we're the Protestants Protestants are very important because they make America great again Protestants are American president Damien becomes the president's son and that's why the Protestants and wait I don't think you're understanding me do you hear what I'm saying Thorns. I mean, these are all facts. They're facts. This is all true. Yes. But how you've put it together. What about it? It's lovely. It's it's lovely. It makes perfect sense if you haven't slept in six days. It makes sense because you're taking facts and you're interpreting something in that way, but that what? sounds like just a story. It kind of is, but it's... Yeah, it's it is. I made it all up. I don't believe any of it. I was like, I looked up things about every name and every place, and I looked until I found enough things in common to put together into a theory, and then I said it with conviction. Right, and so that's exactly what people have been doing for the last two millennia. What? I thought I was the first person ever. <laughs> and so they've been taking these books that were written for a certain use and interpreting it in their own way and looking for facts to support their theory. Oh, you mean doing it backwards. Yeah, and so this is something called confirmation bias. And so that's the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs or hypotheses while giving disproportionately less consideration to alternative possibilities. So this is an error in inductive reasoning, and it's especially seen in very emotionally charged issues or deeply entrenched beliefs. And you can also use very ambiguous information to support pre-existing conditions. None of that information was ambiguous. It was all, it was all ambiguous. <laughs> but it was all true. No, it absolutely was. Like I researched the hell out of this. I spent way too long on it. And so this existence of confirmation bias is so important because it's how people like fundamentalists can get away with this stuff because they are using facts Mm, sometimes well a lot of the time well especially when they're interpreting scripture yeah they're they're so easy to say oh this symbolizes that and so many people have written about confirmation bias before it had that name dante really in the divine comedy was told by saint thomas aquinas Opinion, hasty, often can incline to the wrong side, and then affection for one's own opinion binds and confines the mind. Francis Bacon stated that bias assessment of evidence drove all superstition, whether in astrology, dreams, omens, divine judgment, or the like. He wrote, The human understanding, when it has once adopted an opinion, draws all things else to support and agree with it 
and though there be a greater number and weight of instances to be found on the other side, yet these it either neglects or despises, or else by some distinction sets aside or rejects. So once you've made up your mind, you look for things to support your opinion. I imagine. No, I'm certain. I'm a human. I have this experience. And I can say, I bet it's almost impossible to tell when this is happening for everyone. For, for when you're doing it. Because you're like, here's the facts. These are real facts. It supports what I'm saying. And so one another way to interpret this movie and to interpret the idea of the Antichrist is about what it says about us as humans. Oh, we do that. And so the Seltzer, the writer of the script, said there had been the exorcist, which was a very physical picture with the awful things that happened to a child lying in bed while they tried to exorcise her. But the omen really addressed matters of good and evil much more internally. It was, after all, about a family in a primal deception that led to consequences, and it was very, very much about the schism within all human beings. And so this idea has been around since the beginning of the idea of the Antichrist, that it was actually about this external and internal polarity. And St. Augustine said, one must question his conscience, whether he be such, referencing the Antichrist. He emphasized a very moral internal reading of this Antichrist symbolism. This is in the first millennia. To hell with Nero, like literally whatever I'm sure he said. That doesn't matter. What matters is how you apply these principles and teachings to your life and what you do with them and how you allow your spirit to be corrupted and rigid and not open to good things. Right. Pope Gregory the Great in the late 6th century compared the Antichrist to Job. And he was the head of all hypocrites who feign holiness to lead to sinfulness, patient and humble and suffering. That we should be more concerned with the accumulating body of evil doers. He said, how many have not seen Antichrist and yet are his testicles? Because they corrupt the hearts of the innocent by the example of their actions. Which is my new life motto. Don't be testicles. Don't be the Antichrist testicles. Don't be, that is so much better than don't be a dick. He also says, Antichrist's work is done daily among the wicked. I see what he's saying. Because when I think about like the idea that there could be one supreme evil being or one person so evil and so dark that they are the antithesis of redemption and compassion, I'm like, yeah, I know. Right? Like, I mean, I think about like, fucking Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy, like serial killers who've just taken the lives of innocent people or, you know, people who molest their kids or Andrea Yates killing her kids so they can see Jesus. I'm like, there's evil. There are bad, bad things in the world. If you're telling me it gets worse and it has to get worse and this isn't it, this isn't the depth of depravity that man can fall to. Hitler's not it. But it's like, maybe we should focus on our inner selves That's all we can do. Exactly. And so to bring it back to Young. Oh, well, yeah. Hi, guys. Who we talked about in our Angels episode. He discusses, as we've talked, the ideas of mythology and how we use those as archetypes, as parts of our personality. They represent parts of our humanity. Like Batman's rogue gallery. No, yeah. So this inner assimilation of the idea of Christ and Antichrist, which is different from the Christian idea of evil, 
which is not just an absence, but a lack of good that should be present. Young sees evil as the shadow side of good. He said, Good and evil, being coexistent halves of a moral judgment, do not derive from one another, but are always there together. Christ functioned as a psychological exemplification of the archetype of self. He said, The original conception of the Imagio Dea, the image of God, embodied in Christ, meant an all-embracing totality, including all parts of self. Early on, Christianity split the shadow of self off, this dark side of human totality, into the Antichrist. And he said, in the empirical self, light and shadow form a paradoxical unity. In the Christian concept, the archetype is hopelessly split into two irreconcilable halves, leading ultimately to a metaphysical dualism. And he goes on to say that denying this, denying that there is this dark side of every human is very unwise, that we have to accept it. And by accepting it, you know, we kind of have to check it as well. You know, it's something we need to be constantly looking at. So the idea that the darkness comes from outside? Instead of within? I think maybe that's just a story. Yeah, I think that's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.